Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo brings you a romp through the elegant streets of New York, seen through the eyes of two drifters roaming through a life in a way that can only bring them together through self-realization and warmth in a way that only Hollywood's most skilled director and most luminous actresses can provide. For no matter how much of the mean reds we get in this whirlwind thing called life, we can always calm ourselves with a croissant in the morning outside our favorite jewelry store. That's right, folks. Tonight, you'll be brought back to New York in 1961 with Blake Edwards' influential and enduring comedy classic, Breakfast at Tiffany's. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Yes, join Audrey Hepburn as you've never seen her before, kicking over the traces and bringing to life Truman Capote's breakfast at Tiffany's. I never could do that. Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly, who typifies and glorifies the glamorous playmates of this dizzily spinning world as she and George Peppard breeze through the glitter and shimmer of New York as it has never been captured before. You have a special invitation to attend Audrey Hepburn's open house on the wildest night New York ever knew. Timber! Yes. Oh, good evening, Ed. Tell you one thing, Fred, darling. 
I'd marry you for your money in a minute. You marry me for my money? In a minute. So I guess it's pretty lucky neither of us is rich, huh? Please, darling, don't sit there looking at me like that. Holly, I'm in love with you. So what? So what? So plenty. I love you. You belong to me. No. People don't belong to people. Of course they do. I'm not going to let anyone put me in a cage. I don't want to put you in a cage. I want to love you. Audrey Hepburn and George Papard, searching for love in the big town, but sharing only part of their lives until they find the deep, warm moment of truth that can't be hidden, even by the oddball antics on the brittle surface of New York. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. The Truman, Capote, the Truman Capote novella involving the misadventures of Holly Golightly would be adapted by screenwriter George Axelrod, producers Juro, Anne Shepard, and director Edwards into a romantic comedy classic that has endured through the decades, a role that would come to define Audrey Hepburn and further cement her legacy in filmland. The film has been an inspiration to filmmakers today, as well as makers of fashion and taste to this very minute. And yet the legacy of Breakfast at Tiffany's is not all as glitzy and shimmering as the diamonds in the famed department store. For a cloud surrounds the film that provides a moment of teaching and learning that we can never and will never ignore. Uh, today we will cover all that ground and more, but we cannot do it alone. And with us today is an actress whose outstanding determination and talent has allowed her to tackle whatever realm she chooses. If you need proof of this, you need look no further than the web series Antlers, where she perfectly encapsulates a young woman at the crossroads in her early 20s that reflects the emotions we all feel at difficult points. And today she is here to talk about all things chic and fabulous. Please welcome Abella Bala. Isaac. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So this is now officially the third time we've met because <laughs> the uh, the the background on this um, we've had a, 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 on this show we've had a certain gentleman by the name of John Strelick on twice now, um, soft spoken gentleman who self admittedly looks like a muppet, and uh, <laughs> he uh, <laughs> that's that's a long running joke, um, but he um, John. Uh, developed a feature film that then turned into a web series later on called Antlers, um, where I was acting in it, but you were one of the key players in that series. Um, and when we were on set, we didn't really interact with each other. Cut to 2021. What, what was that? <laughs> one scene together. One scene. That's right. We did the one scene together, and then I never saw you again. Cut to, 20, <laughs> cut to 2021. We... John messages me about, hey, we're going to get Antlers turned into a web series. And I'm like, 
super. So reviewing everything and watching your performance in particular astounded me of not just it's not just a testament to John's writing, but it's a testament to your abilities as an actor because you are encapsulating a different moment in uh, a young person's life that I don't have a exact perspective on that allows an audience to engage with that material and that experience. Um, and when we did the Q and a for John on his page, um, that's when we reconnected and we learned that we had a lot more in common about how we both approach different aspects of our life and how we approached our roles. Um, and I got to say that when I kept revisiting it to like give a give a seal of like it looks good on each episode, uh, it, your performance kept astounding me. And he even edited it in different ways than he initially did in order to really give you more time to uh, breathe as a character. So I have a question for you. Um, you have a lot of talent, obviously. How does this acting bug get started? Oh, yeah. Um, wow. That is like, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because, um, you know, I think it's important to sometimes to often when you can revisit, you know, what was your initial spark with something that yeah. you love to make sure that you're still on track. Right. And yeah. that you're your dreams and goals when you were first starting out are still things that you're um, committed to and have integrity to. Um, so for me, uh, and you know, what's weird about being an actor um, is that I feel like in some ways it's like, you have to explain yourself to people. <laughs> you have to explain yourself to people like, because they're people don't live like actors shit that they have to do in order to get to the places that they go. Mm. It's not normal. <laughs> no, no, it's it's but it is like one of those elements that and I've I've talked about this with the one of the collaborators that I work with the most Risa Scott. You know, you are being asked to inhabit a, dif a different in human being entirely each time. And that's why, like, when I direct, I don't expect them to, like, follow my every whim and demand because you guys are the ones who are having to emotionally put yourself in that place. And I think that that's absolutely astute. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you know, as a director as well, it's like, I was actually explaining myself to, um, I'm dating someone who is, I'm living the La La Land life right now. I'm dating, <laughs> I'm dating you're, a musician. You're dating Ryan Gosling? No way. <laughs> close. That very close. That seems like an issue. He's married with a child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating his character. Ah, um, there we go. Yes. So like a, a, a revised version, of course, but like he, you know, he has a lot of questions about, about like, you know, there are a lot of questions. There are just a lot of questions, right? When you're dating someone, you gotta, you kind of merge lives a little bit. They get a window into like your everyday. Yeah. And as an actor, you kind of have to, you explore a lot of yourself. You have to, um, like his, his big question was, and it's totally valid. He was like, so why are you always in therapy? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> he's like, not to be rude, but like, I'm trying, you know, like, 
for most people that might be a red flag. And I'm like, look, okay. <laughs> I see you. I hear you totally valid. And I kind of had to like revisit like my, your question basically was like, what got you started? And um, I was explaining to him how I got started in acting, you know, in context to like what, why I'm always in therapy and why I'm always trying these different forms of therapy. And uh, basically, like for me, acting, you know, so I don't know if I, I've ever told you about this, Zach, when we last chatted, but I, I, uh, I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. Did I ever tell you this? No, you didn't. And um, I, I would love you to expand upon that if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um Yes, I am very comfortable with it. I have been exploring this topic in my stand-up, so uh, I need to be talking about it more because it is, it's like a weird part of my life that like I've tried to forget, but it's very, it was very formative for me. Mm -hmm. um, mainly in that, like I liken it to like a Jenga, right? So if your development as like a human being in your childhood is like a Jenga game, yeah. you're adding in different pieces, right? And so... I was doing that. My parents were teaching me things. I was learning things about the world from the world outside. But a lot of it was influenced by the lens of like my mom and dad being immigrants that were had escaped communism in Romania mm -hmm. by my mother being a Jehovah's Witness um, and by my father being a like severely intelligent man that like rode the cusp of like genius and insanity for a lot of his adult life mm. um and you know he came from a, he was he was uh how do i explain him he was like he worked for the romanian government and essentially kind of like um fought back when he started to see the problems in the government and how it was turning into a dictatorship and as you can imagine that doesn't go over well in a communist government <laughs> yeah you know i can imagine that's when you need to jump ship and set sail for the u.s at that point yeah like I yeah can yeah so the con that's the condensed version i hope to write about this someday um because their story is both it, it deserves to be a book like that's that's an incredible story right there yeah no for sure um so so yeah so like you know for me as a child growing up with like these parents who are like pretty traumatized and then you know are now like trying to assimilate into this new culture my mom's a jehovah's witness my dad's like a non-denominational christian i guess but he's he's he he's kind of the type that like believes he like knows about every theology and is like they all lead to the same place kind of vibe two very different like perspectives um in a household that was like you know my father came here he kind of lost everything he got he got a job uh, a really great job and then was laid off and was never hired again in his in his um uh domain as an engineer mm -hmm. um and which possibly has something to do with him having ties to a communist government like yeah i, can... I don't know it's i think that what you what you're what you're bringing to the table here um is something that i it's it's interesting how it ends up connecting tangentially to uh, Audrey's history, um, as we'll discuss. But also, like you are, when you have that kind of background and you are thrown into, I mean, I I'm not gonna even attempt to claim that I know as much about the Jehovah's Witnesses as you would. Um, I would say that it's interesting that coming from that kind of background where things are trying to. Uh, 
mesh together in a way that's cohesive and safe for the family as they're growing up in this con- in this new country and raising their daughter, you know, there's going to be this intriguing growing pains to say the least. And I I'm wondering how that led to that development of acting. Like how, how did that kind of uh, bridge the gap? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think job one was like, um, I think I was always a very sensitive, but resilient child. And um, I've been told by, by therapists that I have a lot of mirror neurons, which means that apparently you have like a high capacity for empathy to it to a certain degree that's like almost like you can so uh viscerally feel somebody else's pain Mm -hmm. that it's like it can almost overwhelm your own experience and your own senses so yeah as a child watching my parents were both really traumatized by their experiences and freshly just like trying to assimilate and with no real time in between to like recover um i think i became aware of like nuance and and uh I guess, emotional hardship, like at a really young age. And so both of them having kind of like existential crises that were like ongoing because of, you know, the results of their lives and upbringings. Um, and, And both of them having dealt with like mental health issues and trauma and then, you know, like, Uh, kind of clinging my mom in her case like as a result of that clung to this like religion which back in the day you know for me here it's it was very repressive and very like it was it's a cult it's a cult it's a christian cult right um for her there it was illegal so she was when she got when she became a jehovah's witness it was basically like a rebellion you Mm -hmm. know and and it was like she could go to jail for that they had to be like in hiding and stuff so for her it was actually a really bold thing that she was doing so anyways with all that kind of in lieu like it was like basically kind of a perfect storm of having exposure to really intense concepts as a child um and then feeling this like need to like um i don't know i think that creates like a a a pretty traumatic response in a person. Yeah. Um, And with both of them having like limited ability to really like be supportive, I think there was a need to um, express, you know, so I started off as a writer. I started off writing and illustrating books and poems and all of that um, and music. And I would, you know, I was alone. They, 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 uh, my mom is also a little bit agoraphobic. So, Mm. and we lived in a really gnarly neighborhood in in San Jose that was not very safe. So like she kind of, I felt I was kind of isolated um, for a lot of my early, early life. And I had to, I had no siblings. So I had to like, and they were like at work because, and they couldn't afford a babysitter. So I was like, literally like at home alone, couldn't leave, had to do something. So I feeling, you know, like not seen, not heard so often in my, in my early life, I had to express somehow. So I became, you know, a writer, I would write stories and, and illustrate them, I would put music to them. So in a sense, I was doing my own version of filmmaking that I had access to. I, I hear what you're saying. Because when you have a hard time wondering, if you're being heard, and conceptualizing that writing is always a great first outlet for it. So yeah, you're right, you are very much engaging in a filmmaking atmosphere even though you don't have a camera like creativity knows i mean as we all know and as as a like as cheesy as this terminology may be creativity knows no bounds so 
you know, they, they, there is this there is this element that you are able to escape that uh, escape that f- isolation because you are creating a world for yourself. And it seems like that with the background that you've described and being in a very uh, a, a very strange position for a child to be in, it seems like you've overcome a lot in order to find that expressive niche about yourself that I do appreciate. You are very, very vocal. You don't apologize or mince words in a way that is absolutely admirable. And uh, so like within that, you start with the writing thing and then it naturally, I'm assuming, moves into the acting thing. And yeah, so I mean, you know, thank you, Zach. That was that I appreciate that feedback because you're right. It has taken a lot of work and there have been a lot of like moments of setback where I was unable to be as vocal and authentic. And I think that's why I cling to it so much in my adulthood and, and move so heavily in that direction or try to get there, you know? Yeah. Um, but essentially uh, what happened is, you know, with the Jehovah's Witness church, it's very, it can be a little divisive uh, with families in regards to um, folks that like, like a lot of times. So basically if a, if a person doesn't, uh, doesn't subscribe to the belief system, even in a family, the Jehovah's Witness, like folks, people are encouraged to not keep contact with them. And in some cases, oh. that person can even be excommunicated, which then like the rule is like they can't nobody can talk to them. So it's similar to when Scientology silences a person or um, uh, like th- th- creates the divide in the family. Yeah, gotcha. Correct. So with, you know, with my dad not being a Jehovah's Witness, there was a little bit of room for that. But um, the way that, you know, me being an over empathetic child and watching that, you know, it hurt my mom to have to go to church alone and she was bummed about it and wanting that connection with my mother and, and, you know, her like very like kind of um, inconsistent ability to access it because of her own mental health issues. Yeah. I was like, I became like, okay, like, how can I, how can I, you know, this is the thing that we can do together. So I better be like this golden child for one, for the love of my mom. And also for the fear that if I didn't do that, I would be separated from her. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that kind of influenced me was that like for the first 16 years of my life, um, I was, I, I, tr- I like tried to essentially do what you do with a character. And I didn't realize that I was actually learning to act in my life because that was the only way I felt safe in my family system. Um, Basically I had to learn how to manipulate my inner world in order to uh, like believe this story that they kind of peddled um, as their religious like, like story, even though like for me, it didn't resonate, you know? So I had to, I tried it on for size and I, and I committed to it and I committed to it so well that they actually had me play parts, like essentially act on, on, big stages with like sometimes 5,000 people, 10,000 people doing these little skits that were somehow uh, like pushing forth their agenda in some way or another, right? Either like either displaying how you talk to uh, a person when you go door to door or, and deal with what they call conversation stoppers Mm. um, or like kind of uh, the journey of a young person trying to figure out like their like, 
whatever uh, spiritual commitment. And then eventually they like get there or whatever, you know, it was like that type of storytelling. Yeah. But what was really interesting about, about all that was that like, uh, I didn't realize that I in that time was like teaching myself how to essentially fragment myself into characters that would work for different circumstances. So like when I went to school, I was kind of a different character because that was what worked for school because I was an immigrant and I was Jehovah's witness. So I didn't necessarily fit in. Um, so I had to like find a way to assimilate. Like I sound like a Valley girl. Did I ever grow up in the Valley? No, I must've picked that up somewhere. Right. Mm. Because I wanted to assimilate. So it's just it like, when I look back on like my journey with acting has been kind of tumultuous because it's been a discovery process of reclaiming my self that was fragmented as, as a result of being forced to learn these skills. I didn't want to learn these skills. I was forced to do it in order to feel safe and loved and have my needs met. Um, and then when I went on to finally be like, okay, I'm done with this and like confront my mom, you know, I was 16 and I was like, mom, like, I don't want to do this. I don't believe in this. Um, and it was this huge blowout and we weren't really cool for a while. It was, it was pretty rough. Um, there was like, you know, I talk about the Jenga, like if our, our development is like a Jenga, it's like, I was taking out these core like beliefs and and uh thoughts on like how the world works right because i was like god nope uh fucking the bible nope um i don't know there's like other things in there that like what uh, their views on morality nope so now i had to fill in all these i had these like open spaces and i had to like go live life essentially to decide for myself like what do i think what do I feel? What's true for me? And in that process, there was a lot of mistakes, a lot of like falling on my face, a lot of like pushing boundaries on things that, um, you know, I had been told were wrong uh, in order to discover what it was that I really felt and thought. And in that process, I ended up with somebody who went to the Colorado film school. I started dating this guy. And, you know, what typically happens when you have traumatic uh, experiences early on is you tend to date the trauma, essentially. You, yeah, yeah. In an effort to resolve that trauma, you find people that are essentially um, a replication of what traumatic thing you dealt with. And this person was uh, many years before you and I went there. Yeah. Um, probably in 2004, 2000, sorry, no, 2006, 2007, he was there. Um, but he was a director. And as you know about directors, directors know how to pull the strings, right? Yeah. That can be used for good yeah. or not. Yeah. Uh, Bella Lugosi taught me that in Ed Wood. Pull the strings. Pull the strings. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in this particular case, um, this person, uh, you know, while we had a beautiful chemistry and a wonderful friendship, that that's how it started out. This person really um, ended up in this really dark state of his own psyche. And the way that our dynamic evolved was really, really unhealthy and abusive. And to the point where um, by the end of the relationship, I was I had so much anxiety and like specifically social anxiety because he would like put me down in these like weird ways and kind of like invalidate me and like, you know what I mean? So yeah. essentially, um, 
where I was at is I felt so it's me, somebody who's very, has always been very open and very, you know, I was a performer very young. I was very comfortable speaking to whoever I went door to door for like eight years of my young childhood. I was very comfortable speaking to people, anybody. Um, I now found myself at like 23, not being able to like speak to strangers um, feeling so uncomfortable in my own skin and and with who I was because this person had essentially like put me down so much that I, I felt like anything that I said was wrong or I was defective or, you know, it was just, it was insane. And I couldn't, I couldn't be okay with it. Like I was so like angry and I thought it was so unacceptable for this to have happened that I'm like, okay, what's the most fucking, what's the most intense thing that I could do that's like the opposite of this that I can expose myself to that would like shock this out of my system because this is not cool. Yeah. And what I, what I came up with because he was a director and when he had gone to CFS, he had um, said such wonderful things about Galena and he would tell me about actors. Yeah. And I had talked about like wanting to take a class and he shat on it. Right. He was like shitting on me for like wanting to do that. Uh. Uh, and I was like, I was like, you know what? fuck this guy. I'm going to call him. I'm going to get Galena's phone number. I'm going to go meet with her. I'm going to see if this is a good fit. So I call this motherfucker and I'm like, give me Galena's phone number. And he's just like, what? Okay. He gives me her number. I go and I meet with her and I'm just like floored mm -hmm. for me coming from like having such weird adults in my life, you know, like I met her and I'm like, this is like a 50 year old woman mm -hmm. who is like so free and yeah. so accepting and literally i feel like she i feel like she emanates love like you can see it coming off of her the the experience of knowing her as a person she is she's one of the most amazing people i've ever met i immediately trusted her i immediately trusted her she is like she's just i don't know how to describe her um it's all she's indescribably beautiful of a person. That's how I would describe her. She she's is, just and she's interested in what you're what you're going through, too. Um, I didn't talk to her as often as I should have. Um, and, and I think probably because my focus was not centered solely on acting. And that's a regret that I have from my time at CFS was not paying attention to every aspect and detail and focusing only on the writing and directing sphere. And one thing that I wish I had done was talk to her more about acting and also like just kind of like get to know her a little bit more so it's good that you got that experience from her from the get-go um, yeah I mean, so I mean like honestly like this is you know and this is like what essentially kind of changed my honestly Galena is a big force that like was a life changer for me because when I you know to kind of bring it all full circle it's like I went through all this crazy shit as a kid that taught me how to fragment and abandon myself yeah um and in some ways the fragmenting was it taught me how to play a role uh it taught me how to align with different realities and how to like pull my own strings which was useful but i was using it for something that was uh in in an effort to self-abandon to receive love and so um at a certain point like it was really frustrating and i, I was really angry about how much I had lost of myself and I was really on this like mission to reclaim all the parts of me and, and really understand what it means to be human. Because when you grow up in a cult, a religious cult, uh, I mean, a lot of religions in general can encourage this, but especially a cult. It's so it's so confining and it teaches you to kind of go against your natural human instincts in ways that uh, just 
it's like, it's very disempowering. Um, and it limits your ability to live a full life that's embodied, you know? So when I take my first class with her, all of those Jenga pieces that were missing in that first class were filled in because the, her approach to acting was holistic. It wasn't a scene study. It wasn't, you know, like a storytelling base. It was like spiritual and it was kind of this like enigma that you couldn't quite place, but we could all feel. And from that, it was like all my needs, like for spirituality and for kind of like, like existential, like clarity were sort of, were sort of answered, you know? Yeah. And, um, but what, what happened after that was, was also <laughs> surprising and interesting. So the first, the first role I played, I played, I did some scene, uh, for, I can't remember the director, but some, some director at our school, um, I played a role from the Godfather. And the first thing that I did, I was so embodied and so connected and so present and all of that. And then after that, I completely lost it. And it was so interesting because that first time I was unafraid. Right. So I dove fully in. Right. But after that, it was like all of those blockages that I had built in my body from having to abandon myself for so many years and and my fear of being like like uh rejected if i didn't do that were so heavily entrenched in my um in my in my body in my mind and my my subconscious that my ability to access freedom to um really embody a role was so severely compromised that it was like incredibly inconsistent and i had to work so fucking hard so what happened was acting ended up becoming a litmus test for me on like how much progress i had i had made as a person from that traumatic you know abuse that i experienced essentially yeah and i and i like that you um applied the term litmus test to it because i, I think as as creatives in whatever field we are, we tend to use our art as um, or, our art or our ability to entertain. You know, I'm not a classicist here. Um, the uh, it is a indicator of where we are at emotionally at times. Um, I know I've experienced that with my writing and it's made it hard to write so that it's more of a pure process for me now, unless I'm co-writing with somebody. if I'm co-writing with somebody and we're, understanding what it is like if i'm writing i i, I just finished um over the pandemic i um wrote two comedy scripts with my co-writer in new hampshire um both features and they were of a uh, the, the the comedy was very broad so it was not necessarily having to put a lot of my emotional stakes into it but at the same time, I was writing a outline for a silent musical, which is a concept that is very hard for people to wrap around until I explain the historical context behind it. And that was much more a situation where, okay, I've got two characters here. Where am I? Where am I emotionally at right now? And what's the statement that I want to make based off of that? And I have to look into that litmus test area in order to find out where I am emotionally. And what I ended up coming out of it was, was, and I, and I used two female characters as the perspective point for this because, because one, cause I'm tired of male centric perform, uh, movies. I can't, uh, I'm, I'm not in that zone anymore. 
Um, but the other one was like, there's still a universality of like finding your voice and being able to speak, speak up about what you want to speak out, uh, speak up about or expressing yourself. And that was something that I had to get to through my art with recognizing through the art where I'm at. So like after I finished that outline, I was able to take a look at where I was emotionally and realize like how much progress I had made as opposed to where I would have been two years prior. And I like that you saw that Godfather scene and then from there have used it as a check-in point because when we did antlers, you know, I was in a, you know, from, from the Q and a, I was in a very different place in my life and a very, very dark place in my life. And I get from your performance that you were at a, at at your own form of a crossroads, um, in different aspects of your life without even knowing any specifics. Like there is a indicator in your performance that, you know, you are resonating with the character because you are living that into a certain respect, Um, and then from there you are able to apply whatever confusion you're feeling at the time or any, uh, heartbreak that you're feeling at that time. And it shows in the performance. And that's why it's a strong performance to me because you are reflecting a part of yourself that only comes when you are able to have that self-awareness that you possess. And I think that that's important for actors because if they're not aware of where they are on a certain line, uh, then they aren't giving an honest performance. Um, and I feel honesty when I've seen your work. So that's a good indicator that you have taken all of these lessons to art and filled in those Jenga pieces in order to create a solid structure that from this point upward keeps going up and becoming stronger as a result. The foundation is even more intact than it was when you were younger going through that from from what my perspective is seeing. And I think that I love that you had the journey that you had, even though obviously it's filled with pain because you have come out of it a very strong individual, which I think is a, you know, I, I, when I, when I started this episode, I did not expect the full journey that I got here. So this is is 37 minutes of, of wonderful, of wonderful insight. And I do think relates to the discussion we're going to have about breakfast at Tiffany's because it is, uh, this is a story about self discovery in a lot of respects, in a lot of ways. And I think that your, your journey in particular is, is something that I hope that the listeners of this show take to heart because especially when it comes to how women are thankfully making more strides in this industry, stories like this are important to understand that this isn't just an industry thing. This is a personal and emotional thing that everybody deals with. And and in a sense, even though it's a woman's story, it's also universality. Like anybody can relate to this. So thank you for sharing that because that's, that's never easy to talk about. Like, you know, I don't, I have difficulty talking about stuff like that out loud. So like, you just, you just got to put it on stage a little bit and then we'll clear that. up. What if, what, what if I come up with an elaborate fan dance to explain my pain? I wonder how that would look on a stage. Yes. I'd like to see a one man show from you at some point. No, but I mean, like, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the connection and the parallels with, um, uh, the breakfast at Tiffany's story and the, and the, and Audrey's like journey in that, because 
I didn't really, isn't it so funny? Like art imitates life. It's like, it's just, it's mm -hmm. like this, like, it's like, it's interlocked and you can't, you can't get away from it as much as you try to, or think you are oh, yeah. You're literally <laughs> thinking, you know, like, have you had those times where you've like sat down to write something just to distract yourself from something painful? And then you look at the story and you're like, it could be as fantastical and as out there as possible, but it's still exactly what you're going through. And you're like, how did that just happen? Like, yeah, it's I a metaphor. It, 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 I, I think it definitely has come through when um, on uh, on things that I've directed as of late, but also in writing, I agree. You are trying to it's almost like you're trying to puzzle solve um, in a way that uh, seems roundabout, but in the end actually provides a lot more clarity. And it was hard for me initially when I was a younger person with going through my own issues and, you know, coming to and learning how to be a better person as a result of looking back on my, on my, on myself at that time, you're trying to puzzle solve and the writing seems to be the only solution to it. Some in similar ways, that's how acting operates because you can play a role that you may not have a bunch of experience on the character going in, but once you start inhabiting it and digging into it, you find more commonality than you probably than you probably expected to find like you can find like examples of actors who go through a role that they're not expecting to have an emotional connection and they walk out of the experience completely changed because of that performance and yeah yeah i mean it's interesting that you mention the puzzle solving i think for me i often have tried to use um art as an escape and then in that attempt to escape just like the character right in in uh in breakfast at tiffany's it's like you're trying to escape but you you literally just are led back further to yourself like yeah. you try to escape you think you're so you know you're able to hide all this you know you're hiding this like behind this like elaborate whatever the fuck when really what's actually happening is you are so transparent and you're so like anybody watching is like knows exactly what's going on and it's interesting because uh, I thought it's, you know, you mentioned something about the pain, uh, that it was, you know, my childhood and all that was like filled with a lot of pain. And while it was like, I look back on it and the times that I like mostly remember and the way that I kind of remember it is that it, I like, it was resilient. It was like, it was like this, like this pattern of like pain and whatever the fuck was going on that was like confusing and chaotic. And then this like, attempt to overcome and those moments of like attempt attempting to overcome something are literally what has shaped my life as an artist and as a person and has brought without those like my life would be I don't even know like it would be really fucking boring you know and not very interesting and, but it's and you'd be same. holding stuff in you'd be holding stuff in as a result and that's yeah and these are the things I think that shape you and in the same way I think you know uh breakfast at Tiffany's tells a beautiful story about how running away from your past and the ways that you try to overcome, that's actually the way you recreate yourself and create your life. Yeah. But, and you end up ending up at the same truth that was there all along. Yeah. You, you can change the environment, but the truth always remains the same. And like, and you, and you learn to adapt with it and accept certain parts of yourself and finding the positive aspects within it, and I'm a big believer in in, in an optimistic out, outcome because I spend a lot of time being pessimistic. And yeah. when I had my shift, 
you know, like I still have pessimism, but it, but I, I have to remember that optimism is a, uh, an essential part of how we operate because if we don't have it, there is literally no point walking out the door each day. And I think that it's good that we will, when we start getting into this discussion on breakfast at Tiffany's, we talk about how there's a lot of moments in this film where we are stuck in apartment buildings. We are stuck in rooms. We are stuck in one place. And it's not until we move outside that character development grows and changes in very profound ways up until the very last frame of this movie. And I I think that within that, there's a question that comes to mind that it's a question that I ask every guest here, but I think I'm going to tailor this specifically to how this conversation has gone so far is uh, my typical question is how do you uh, what is your experience with Golden Age Hollywood? But I would love to know what is the first when is the first time you had breakfast at Tiffany's? Hmm. Like meaning me- meaning when was the first time I saw the movie? Yeah, when was the first time? No, no. Did you go to New York yesterday and have a croissant in front of the building? <laughs> I was like trying to think. I'm like, is he speaking in metaphors right now? Or <laughs> um... it was my attempt to be clever, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it was clever. It got me thinking. <laughs> it got me thinking. Well, okay, so. Yeah, the first time I saw the film actually was at the very start of the pandemic. Really? Oh, wow. It was at the very start of the pandemic. And I was like, why the fuck have I not seen this? Like, (laughs) I call myself an actress? Come on, you know? But I'm such like a contrarian. I'm such a little, you know, I'm like, if it's popular, I don't want to watch it. You know, like, I'm like that. So I was just like, okay, get over yourself, dude. Just watch the movie and see what you think, you know. Mm-hmm. And you walked out of it obviously with a with a with a bigger picture in mind on it, which is interesting. Had you had a, a experience with these older films pre nineteen sixty eight before, like your like your typical black and white golden age Hollywood fair? Like, and if so, do you have any um, particular examples of it? Look, I if I'm being honest, I breezed through. I breezed through the repertoire to the extent that like I needed to know these things for like historical purposes as a, as an actor. Um, I think I probably attended 70% of like my, what was it? History of film class at CFS. Yeah. That's yeah, one of it <laughs> with Andrew Houston. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yo, film expression. He showed us uh, Joan, uh, Joan of Arc, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, which was a wonderful, yeah. wonderful uh, open door tool for foreign filmmaking. But yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. And that's, you know, that it's funny. Like I, I, I've, I've run into this a couple of times with guests where they feel embarrassed about their knowledge base. And the, and the response I will always have to that is don't feel embarrassed. You welcome to the club. You're going to have so much fun with these older films and what they have to teach and offer. And um, it, it's interesting that you find yourself in the middle of the pandemic experiencing breakfast at Tiffany's because not just the fact that it steps outdoors in a way that you're just like, I want to go outside, but there is a lot of like reflection that can happen with, especially how Holly Golightly presents herself and those moments in the apartment where it does provide that introspection. And as we've already alluded to, there is a lot of self-discovery that comes with in this movie. And it seems like an opportune moment for you to have experienced it and to, to take something from it, which I, I think is an absolute blessing for this show. 
And um, I, I guess on that note, you know, like when you when you watch the film, like a question that I have going in before we do the pre-production is, was it did it feel dated watching this experience of a young woman going through uh, the busy the busy life of a New York, uh, a New York, a New York resident or even just a woman in the 60s in general? Like, did it did you feel any disconnect or outdatedness or were you able to kind of look past any of those elements to see the emotional truth there? Yeah. So I had different experiences uh, the different times that I watched it. So the first time that I watched it, I remember thinking, these motherfuckers have no boundaries. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I would freak out if my neighbor, like, came in through my window. Like, hell no, you know? (laughs) Um, That was, like, that was my first, uh, (laughs) that was my first thought. But then when I watched it this week, I was actually really surprised at how relatable it was and how revolutionary it was for the times because there were certain, I mean, her story and her attitudes are very 2021 of women right mm-hmm. now. Like it's, it's kind of impressive that this was like a popular film that was, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if people were, had the experience of being like, this is so different than anything we've seen that that's why they were inspired by it, you know? Yeah, I think that that's a testament to um, the director of this film and Audrey Hepburn, um, which we're going to talk about both of them here a little bit right now. Um, uh, Blake Edwards, uh, he was always going to be a part of the show because he forms a lot of essential comedy going forward that, starts breaking ground as golden age Hollywood is starting to dissipate. Um, his first film operation petticoat with Cary Grant is his big breakthrough. And it already establishes the tempo and the tone that he's going to go with down the line. Um, people who are listening, if they don't know Blake Edwards by name specifically, I'm sure you remember a certain pink Panther, uh, and a certain Inspector Clouseau who would solve the various mysteries throughout several different films. And Blake Edwards is the starting point for that um, with his direction of the Pink Panther and uh, obviously creating a comedy icon as a result. But he's also uh, directed several different comedies from 10 on down to SOB, which is a uh, SOB is one that I do recommend people check out. It's a very um, uh, underlooked Blake Edwards movie that's after the Golden Age of Hollywood. It's a very, very honest movie about Hollywood. Um, and very uh, uh, abrasive in its approach, and I, it's something that I'll never not appreciate. But Edwards started um, uh, working in television. Um, born in Oklahoma in 1922, his father left the family before his birth, and his stepfather, Jack McEdwards, was actually the son of Jay Gordon Edwards, who was a silent film director who, amongst the films that he directed of note, a, a lost film called Queen of Sheba from 1921 had a chariot scene of grand elegance four years before Ben-Hur in 1925 or 1926. So the family moves out to L.A. in 1925. He goes to Beverly Hills High School. He graduates and he starts taking up acting um, where he worked, as he said in his uh, interview with The Village Voice, he worked with the best directors, Ford, Weiler, and Preminger, and learned a lot from them. But I wasn't a very cooperative actor. I was a spunky, smart-ass kid. Maybe even then I was indicating that I wanted to give, not take direction. 
Um, but he would take some direction from the Coast Guard of America during World War II, where he also, um, in addition to serving, received a back injury that would plague him for years going forward. Um, this in, uh, in his, uh, career ascendance, he makes it to television where he starts directing for four star playhouse in 1952 and his directing career blossoms where he also starts creating television shows. Not the least of which is the Mickey Rooney show, uh, with Richard Quinn from the 54 to 55 season. Now we suddenly seem to understand a little bit why Mickey Rooney is in the mix here, uh, as we go along. Um, but he also wrote scripts for Richard Diamond, Private Detective, which was uh, which was that particular network's answer to other detective programs that were appearing at the time. Um, these uh, Richard Diamond is kind of a uh, slight comedic spin to it as a premise and concept. And so his talent with humor and his own personal spin on it becomes very apparent with these early scripts. He also does the television adaptation for Mr. Lucky, which was a film that we discussed early on on this show. Um, and in the 1950s, he works on television on a show called Peter Gunn, where he creates it and starts directing episodes for it. This is where he would end up first collaborating with Henry Mancini, the noted composer of this score, the Pink Panther score, and the Baby Elephant Walk. And, oh, my God, it's the prolific after prolific. Henry Mancini was a genius, guys. Um, and the by the time he gets to Breakfast at Tiffany's, coming off of Operation Petticoat, it seems like he definitely observed that breakfast at tiffany's based as a story from truman capote's novella there's something here he can play with that allows for human dissection in a way that is going to be a uh, a through line in his career going forward because he's not just about broad comedy that you see in a pink panther movie there is it's character based it's character based comedy and i think that breakfast at tiffany's is the gold standard for where that starts, but also it's the one, it, the reason people go back to this is because Edwards touches on very human parts of ourselves in these characters, whether it's Holly Golightly, whether it's Peter, uh, whether it's 2E, uh, everybody gets a voice here. Um, uh, well, except for one, we will talk about that, but the <laughs> needless to say that I think that Edwards, uh, abilities behind that, are a big reason why the movie works as well as it does because the script and even the actors can only so go so far. You need somebody who's able to hone in on a realistic approach. And as evidenced in this movie, Edwards has a very um, casual and collaborative uh, process with his actors that creates spontaneous moments that are actually very crafted and detailed uh, in a way that uh, is very exemplified in the party scene. And I think that when you watch that party scene in particular, you're seeing actors that you've never heard of because they're all people that Edwards was familiar with through acting, acting experiences and just knowing them in person that he comes up with stuff on the spot to create these human moments in this very wacky scene. Um, but of course at the center of this whole party and of this whole movie is Miss Audrey Hepburn. Um, Undeniably an icon. Secret History of Hollywood's Blueprint series, uh, did, uh, which is available on his Patreon, and I know I'm plugging his show too much on this show, but you guys just got to have to fucking deal with that. Um, he, um, uh, he has a more in-depth history on Audrey. We are going to be brief, but uh, as beautiful as Audrey herself in describing this uh, particular background, because 
Did you know? Did you know that she is descended of Dutch noblemen's? <laughs> I had no well, idea of this. I wanted to ask you. I wrote some notes here, and I had some questions. And the first one of these questions is: people, specifically women, on Halloween, idolize her in this role. And yeah. why do you think that is? <laughs> oh, um, I will tell you that. It's one thing to have Edith Head as your costume designer, um, who already is a gold standard from our Hitchcock series on elegance, when especially clothing one Miss Grace Kelly. But you also have Hubert de Vinci. Uh, de Vinci. I cannot pronounce the last name. I'm sorry. Audrey Hepburn's personal wardrobe was designed by Hubert. And... He created iconic looks that it just seemed like they'd never been seen before. And I do think that the way Audrey Hepburn carries her character is a testament to why that cosplay happens at every Halloween. Because there is something about the way she moves in that opening scene in that elegant dress eating a croissant outside of Tiffany's. It's, It's iconic. Like, I could imagine any person man or woman seeing that and going like, man, I wish I had that confidence, you know, like, or that, that gumption about myself to just be my own self, be who I am. And, and I say men and women, because we've, we've grown and evolved as a society to where a man can wear that Audrey Hepburn gown and look spectacular in it. And I think that that's a big reason why it, 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 it's one thing to have the design of the of the of the gown or the or the dress. It's another thing about seeing the person who inhabits it. Audrey, to me, represents an icon an iconic stature that promotes confidence, charm, and sophistication. And I think any of us as human beings want that in any form of our lives. Um, if I'm talking about the between the two Hepburns that exist in Hollywood's sphere, Catherine is my go-to. Audrey Hepburn is undeniably one of the most charming people to watch on a movie screen. I love Charade for that reason. Well, that and Walter Matthau's early appearances, but that's just because I like Walter Matthau. Um, so I think that's the answer to your question. If you are looking at a performance like Holly Golightly and watching the exuberance and the delight and the confidence that is contained in the dress, that's the reason you want to embody that at Halloween or, hell, embody that and in your daily life. Because it's not just, like, evening wear she's wearing. She's wearing, like, sophisticated clothing throughout the movie, you know? Well, she doesn't just do the dress either. She all, like, or I'm sorry, uh, the, like, Halloween, like, costume doesn't just do the dress. There's a lot of uh, the, the her outfit when she was waking up and she's wearing, like, the, yeah, you the... know? I mean, I think part of that probably is because of the ease of the outfit in mm-hmm. terms of, like, a last-minute Halloween <laughs> decision. That, okay, that's a good one. Yeah, that's, that's I would agree. It is kind of hard to find earplugs that look that uh, that elaborate. <laughs> but, true, uh, true. But, but I think uh, Reese Witherspoon probably wore it best on um, Big Little Lies. So. <laughs> I, I still need to see this. She wears, she wears those earplugs in it? So Reese Witherspoon, there's a scene that takes place or like kind of like a whole episode that takes place at a Halloween party. And uh, Reese Witherspoon goes as Holly Golightly in the um, in the like the the eye mask and the 
outfit and yeah. the yeah. Yeah, the the her her nighttime attire when she first encounters Peter. Yeah. <laughs> it's which is so good by the way, and it's interesting because I think one other thing I love about that film is it's one of the few films of that time frame that like showed somebody like imper- imperfect, like their version of imperfect. Yeah. I mean, she's so perfect. Like she still looks like her makeup is just like flawless. She wakes up and you're just like, how? But like the, the, the comment on the commentary, the, the producer Shepard uh, stated, he's just like, I've had women come up to me many times and say like, there's no way she would be that made up coming right to the door out of getting, after getting out of bed. I'm just like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah it's like, that's, you know, directed by a man for sure. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know they weren't comfortable showing all that back then you know like now you see like uh like one of my headshots has to basically look like i am a crackhead you know what i mean like that is a headshot that a manager <laughs> requires. You know? yeah um, it, it, that shows the that shows the evolution of it too and 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 i do feel that like part of it is like if you uh, and paramount might be thinking this as a studio is like if you've got audrey hepburn on screen you want to make sure she looks as good as possible obviously it's an outdated mode of thinking but like that that's one of those elements where I'm just like, okay, they're going to be, they're going to be made up the entire time. They're not going to look realistic whatsoever. I just have to kind of uh, reserve myself to that, on that reality. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that, that now I need to check out big little lies amongst other, many other reasons, obviously. Um, yeah. But that's good to know that that, that particular element of the costume has extended beyond just the elegant gowns. Cause she's also wearing that sweater in, in more than one scene where she's just looking casual and she's like, it's, it's, you know, comfortable at home attire um, where I'm just like that. Even that ha- carries a form of a, a, a form of iconoclasm that you'd want to inhabit. You know, you'd want to, you'd want to, you'd want to have that kind of down home feeling. And I think Holly Golightly is comfort food for some people as a character. Um, because she- what a perfect role for her to play too, for Audrey to play, because she has such like a, like a class to her and such like a, I don't know. She is such kind of like this, this honesty that's tempered by this like bright spirit so yeah. she can be brutally honest and say some real shit and you're you're not like you're like oh like oh okay like you know you're like yes put me in my place girl like <laughs> yeah you're, you're just like when she says to mag uh, uh mag wildwood you're like, mag you're being a bore like you're just like oh i will listen to you obviously she's not listening to her but we are like yeah. i would believe her if she said i was a bore i'd be like you're absolutely right miss hepburn i am fucking boring as sin or I am being boorish and rude. I need to stop. <laughs> like you- I love it when in like within the first like what like five minutes of the movie, she tells. Well, okay, so I wrote. I, I didn't write character names in here. I like made notes here, and I didn't write character names. I just just wrote it as I was watching it. I go, I love when Holly Golightly tells her hot neighbor that she's taken her care, care of herself a long time when he tries to advise her against being an informant for the mafia. It's like. <laughs> like giving her very like good advice but she's also like no like i'm good and i'm like wow how um revolutionary for a woman in her in the 60s right when in like the 50s women are still we have like what is it uh what's the what's the show that's like to the moon alice oh honeymooners yeah honeymooners with uh jackie gleason yeah what what was that 
when was that when was that uh, airing it was oh that was in the 1950s it was in the early thir- in the early 50s it was one of the early television staples now granted it only lasted it only lasted 39 episodes and the characters ended up extending into sketches in Jackie Gleason's later shows but we've talked about that on the show where you have Ralph Cramden's incredulous catchphrase to one of these days Alice bang zoom straight to the moon and you you, you can't you can't watch it today without rolling your eyes because you're just like, oh, this is so fucking outdated. Um, but what a contrast of like from the 50s to literally 1960, like this is coming out, you know, and this woman is like so powerful. She's like and the just the even just the fact that they um the like contrast between basically like Paul having this uh this woman that's paying him for sex essentially mm-hmm. it's like wow like what a contrast like that i mean you don't even see that really in like today's um yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, this there was something about the film and uh, the the contrast between audrey and um and George Papard that I found interesting because this uh, George Papard story in particular is something you don't really see in a film and seeing this, it's a vulnerable perspective and it's oddly vulnerable for the era. Um, which is funny because two things I want to bring up about the performance before talking a little bit about Audrey is Papard's character is actually, uh, beefed up a bit from the novella to be more virile as a man. And that's evidenced in the performance. However, when he's talking to two E played by Patricia O'Neill, he is having to be put in a very vulnerable position that masculinity standards indicate is not a position to be in. And yet yet. here we are looking at this example of vulnerability from an actor who uh, uh, compared to Audrey Hepburn, uh, Peppard was more in the vein of the method actor, which uh, Audrey was not particularly a fan of. Um, and yet you are watch it i think it requires that method for him as a man in the 60s especially to be put in that spot and it's also a testament to edwards to be like we're going to we're going to be as vulnerable as we can with the standards that are given to us and break the boundaries in these small ways that then i mean you do see these boundaries like completely shattered in 10 to 20 years after the fact but you're right. We don't see this same vulnerability as much as we probably should. It's such a it's such a big film mm-hmm. that like what? How many blockbusters have you seen lately that have such like a vulnerable male character? And the way that I think um, Fred slash Paul played it was so like he he held the paradox of both things beautifully. Like that moment where he's like you know the contrast between when he kind of like is like humbly, you know, dealing with, uh, what is her name? What is the- Oh, 2E, yeah, 2E, Patricia O'Neill's character, his his benefactor, as it were, yeah. Benefactor, yes. The way how like he deals with her and then the contrast to when, um, when Holly is like under his like wing and he's just like holding her and like, he's like kind of has this like empowering, like masculine, like, thing Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting it's like it seems like he doesn't get the opportunity to do that and it 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 had me wondering like behind closed doors how are him and patricia's character 
you know, like, yeah. are they like in the like sexual dynamic? Are they like, what is the vibe there? Like is. Yeah. I got the feeling that Patricia two E is more. Um, it's just that she is much more aggressively pursuing him. Whereas he is taking this opportunity as it stands, but he, he himself up until he meets Holly, he's not given any other reason to think it's a bad situation for him or an emotionally compromising situation for him. So I have, I mean, and she's evidence to be more the aggressor and much more the in power, in control of his situation to where, you know, I would have to imagine that extends into the sexual relationship as well. Um, yeah, I keep thinking, like, what is their sex like? Like, what <laughs> is that <laughs> back in the 60s? Like, what's going on there? I'm, and it was... <laughs> Yeah, I, I was, I was going to say, I imagined uh, uh, George Papard with fuzzy handcuffs. Like that's <laughs> for sure. God, there's a sketch there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, you know what I also thought was really cool was their dialogue um, when it's kind of revealed and acknowledge what's going on there. Like mm-hmm. when she like sneaks up into his room and she kind of called like when, oh, sorry, Holly does. Um and I don't know if I should call them by their actor name or their character name, but whatever. Oh, either Holly, or. Totally fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when she sneaks up into his room and she's basically calling him on his, on his, on the, on the situation. Yeah. Um, and they're talking about his book and stuff and they're kind of talking in code, but like they're talking about things being dirty and mm-hmm. like he kind of angles it in this direction of like, well, what's really dirty is like, something about like hopefulness or something like these, the words in the English language that are really dirty. And, and he talks about, I can't remember the, do you remember the word he said? He had like three words and one of them like indicated like hopefulness. And I was just like, damn, like, I I, I can't remember the exact wording, but like, I, I know what you're talking about. And this is the scene that arguably, you know, what you, you brought up something about Audrey Hepburn's uh, ability to sell this role. Because let's get this out of the bat right now. She's playing an escort or a call girl in the movie. And this is something that nobody expected of her. At this point in her career, she had already won an Oscar for Roman Holiday. She had already established herself as this figure of elegance. Nobody thought she would want to play this role or could play this role. Paramount didn't think so. And in fact, Truman Capote saw Marilyn Monroe in this movie before he saw Audrey Hepburn. Um, Giro and Chappard are the ones who really pushed for Audrey and along with Edwards as well. And it was thankful that Audrey had one more film on her contract with Paramount to where that was the gateway opening. And Paramount said like, well, she probably won't do it. So she probably won't do it. You could try, but she probably won't do it. And then Audrey said like, no, fuck you. I want to play this. I want to play this role. And that scene according to Shepard in the commentary is the uh, is the is the way you sell the fact that yes Audrey Hepburn is playing this particular character that is subverting uh, characterizations of a call girl or escort that were present at that time into something completely different into something completely revolutionary and you know I, I gotta be honest in going through her history it's almost like why would you doubt? that she could have this power. Um, she, to to kind of summarize it, being born 
in the circumstances that she does, where she has one parent out of uh, who was a Dutch noblewoman and the other who was a British citizen, who the Hepburn, by the way, comes from the fact that he uh, the father added the Hepburn to the Rustin name to extend more aristocracy, and he thought misguidedly that he was descendant of the Hepburns that were the third, the James Hepburn that was the third husband to Mary Queen of Scots. So there's already some kind of like identity change kind of flowing within the Hepburn family at this point. When, when she, when he and her, her mother split up, when Audrey's mother and father split up at the time, they were, in a very strange situation where they were raising money for the uh, for for I wanted to make sure I got this correct because it, it's it's a it's seen as a weird black spot in her history. But the British Union of Fascists, which at the time fascism was on a rise in Britain at this point, as well as other parts of Europe. Uh, obviously, we know where it fully rose um, in Nazi Germany. And um, by the time, but there there is a there is a division in the family that leads to the father to leave. So her father abandons her by the age of six. Wow. The mother takes uh, the mother takes her away to the family estate in An- Arnhem, where she begins studying ballet. And as she is starting to learn ballet and finding an identity with a father not present in the picture other than being insistent of the fact that she be educated in England and thus her ballet lessons really truly begin at a an independent school in the UK where in her final years she starts developing this talent, World War II breaks out. The family goes back to Norway under the hopes that the Nazis will, will respect it as neutral territory. Spoiler alert, they didn't because they're Nazis um, and they don't give a shit. And the their their experience during the war forms a picture of Audrey Hepburn that suggests she has more than enough qualification to handle a tough role, as it is supposed by a studio. And if I were to tell you that this is a woman who, while learning more ballet and cultivating her skills, she was supporting the resistance efforts in in Velp, the city that they ended up emigrating to uh, amidst the progress of the war, she had she would give underground concerts on top of regular tasks performing to raise money for the Dutch resistance. She would deliver underground newspapers, deliver food and messages to allied flyers hiding in the woodlands of Velp, and where the f- and the family was put under the circumstance where they were in that Holland area during the Dutch famine. So she she had gone through a whole slew of activity prior to this. And in the ni- in 1944 following D-Day, their area experiences the Dutch famine where they are making flour out of tulip bulbs to make cake and biscuits. She develops malnutrition as a result, but she doesn't give up. She doesn't give up. By the following of the war, she goes to study further in ballet and is told by Ham, uh, by the Rambert School that she will never become a prima ballerina because her weak uh, her weak uh, her weak health and 
ill constitution would make her unsuitable for prima ballerina. So she says, fuck you. I'm going to go into acting. As she, as she goes into acting, she develops a stage presence first as a chorus girl and then later gaining roles at different elements of the West end of London before she is cast in the Broadway production of Gigi. Uh, Gigi, which would go on to be a, a film defining role for her as well. Her role in Gigi on Broadway leads to Roman Holiday, where she wins her first Oscar, her big first starring role, not a supporting first starring role. She wins an Oscar for this. If you're going to tell me that Paramount really has doubts about her ability to play a complicated character, they clearly didn't look into who they were dealing with and just saw her as a quote unquote pretty face, which is denigrating beyond all belief to think that you can't look at... It's one of those things that's frustrating about Golden Age Hollywood at times because the studio executives are not seeing the person. They're just seeing the dollar. Um, or they're just seeing the box office potential. And it's just like, you don't understand. This woman's lived a life. I think she can play Holly Golightly just fine. <laughs> you know, like, And that, that to me is a testament to her strength. In that scene, in the scenes to follow, and especially by the very end, where we get that moment with the cat um, outside of the taxi, because you are, you are dealing with somebody who is throwing Even if she's not a method actor, she is still throwing experiences into her performances. She understands how to read a character and how to play into a character and bring what she can to the table. She shows a vulnerability and a strength that I think is, uh, disparately found in films of this era um and thankfully this is a film that coming into the 60s becomes much more prevalent but she is obviously a groundbreaker for characterizations like this and you know i'll ask you when you're i mean now that i've unloaded all this information about audrey hepburn and whatnot does that change the way you even view her character in this movie let alone her as a performer Yes. I mean, honestly, I'm like pissed that I didn't know this already, but I'm so, I feel so enlightened by that. That's like, it's, it's interesting. And I, it's also weird because I wrote a script about a girl who uh, basically gets booted from the, from the ball, uh, from her uh, dance company as a ballerina because she gets too fat, which for her, mm. which is just normal, you know, normal yeah. size. Um and says fuck you and moves to Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. It's like, I'm like weird. It's weird how sometimes we just vibe into uh, stuff in the universe. I don't know. Have you ever read Big Magic? No, Elizabeth I've never. Gilbert? No, never. She talks about how ideas are like these kind of visitors that kind of exist on their own, almost like spirits. And they kind of live in this like spiritual realm and they come to us. And they don't belong to any one person, but they come to you from this other place. And if you don't create whatever it is that comes to you, someone else will almost like they're these like little like ghosts that come to us or whatever. And I always wonder, like, sometimes I think when you, when you uh, watch somebody, like, it's like you're aligned with, I don't know. Have you ever had this happen where you're like aligned with like, you know, things about them for some reason that you don't know why are you? Yeah. That you, you feel a connection that is, is not definable right away. There's no instant definability. Um, and you, yeah, but sometimes, 
show up in these like almost images or thoughts that are like very deeply personal to that person. And yeah. you're like, how did I know this mm-hmm. about you? I don't know. I'm saying I'm psychic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no. I think that there's a connection that you feel when you, that's a similar feeling that you have when you see an image in a film and you don't understand why it resonates with you right away, but you start to peel back the layers and you start seeing something that, was intrinsically there from the get-go. It's the reason why when something unfolds, you feel an emotional reaction. Your emotional yeah. reaction is not, it's not dictated by surface level. It's dictated by inner, these inner feelings. And when you, I, um, I guess a good example is when I watch, uh, uh, when I watch the sunshine boys, uh, directed by Herbert Ross, when I watch that film, I'm, being uh, when I first saw it, I was emotionally resonating with the two older vaudevillians, and I was like, "But I'm not old. I'm not. I'm not a geriatric performer in vaudeville." But the idea of their art not being appreciated by an audience today or feeling outdated and outmoded is something that I can intrinsically feel because of being a fan of these older. Uh, older uh, older mediums of entertainment so there's an emotional quality that took me forever to quantify i i could not express it when i was 11 or 12 years old watching that movie i had to learn over time what that meant but there was an emotional connection right there from the get-go um it's no different from any time i've watched you know any film or any experience with a person like put it beyond film for a second like sometimes i'll hear somebody tell a story and i'm just like you know, I'm not sure exactly why I'm connecting with that person, but I'm f- feeling connected. And then you you think about it later on and you start digging back into your own psyche and you start realizing that, like, that's the connection there. That's the connection that I was missing that instant, but now I understand it and now I realize it. Isn't it fascinating how, like, how film has this ability to, it's, like, mysterious. It, like, I think what I love the most about film um, is that it has this ability, it's a, it's an art form where you're painting with nuance and mm-hmm. in order to be able to like have colors to paint with and have a lot of different kinds of colors and, and different shades that are like uh, varying, you know, ever so slightly, you have to have observed humanity enough to understand the co- complexities of like this mysterious ass experience that we're having here. Like it's not linear at all. You know, that was like, like as a callback, you know, my, the the guy I'm dating was asking me about like why I am so interested in psychology and in, and in therapy. Like I was explaining that, like, I, you know, one of the things that Galena, for example, Galena was really good at this at, at, uh, and she wrote a book even about this called sanity and acting. Mm -hmm. And, um, basically, like her I don't know if you remember this about her but she was very forthright that was like pretty soon after Heath Ledger had committed suicide after his role uh on Dark Knight and she was heavily like pushing like hey you have to be really mentally healthy and at the time I totally didn't I didn't totally understand why but then as I progressed I understood like oh we're pulling strings in our psyche and accessing something like really mysterious that like 
we can't quite put our finger on. And, and people have studied it. People have talked about it from different perspectives. Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, right? About yeah. the archetypes oh, yeah. and how those exist universally, right? And yeah. like anywhere that you go in the world, similar stories exist, similar characters. Um, so actors like, you know, like Audrey Hepburn, when she's, she's accessing something and you talk about her history and everything she went through, it makes a lot of sense that she had to experience some really extreme, uh, complex life circumstances in order to be able to understand the complexities and, and embody, you know, the complexities of what the story presents, you know, like to be like the call girl, the, you know, sex work in general, I, I'm really fascinated with it. I worked, um, I used to do makeup. I did, I did a little stint of makeup artistry, uh, before I went to school for acting. And one of my, like in Colorado, it was like tough to come by jobs sometimes. And somehow I ended up working in the strip clubs as a makeup artist. So I learned a lot about humanity through that. And it was really, I, I have a lot of respect for sex workers because it's such a, it's such a complex industry and the the people that I know that are really good at it in terms of, and and are able to stay healthy. Um, And when I say good at it, I mean like essentially it's the, it's a form, it's a public, it's a service. It's a public service, at least in the, in, in terms of like the strip club where you have these men coming in that really, yes, it's, it's sexual, but what's really happening is there's like an emotional connection that's, that's missing that they're seeking. A lot of these, um, women would tell me, you know, my clients, I would do makeup on these girls and they would tell me about their experiences. And I learned a lot about them through that, ex- through that, um, kind of relationship, that client, uh, uh, I guess, dancer relationship. And they would tell me about how a lot of these men were really just like wanting somebody to talk to. Yeah. Um, and, or not getting some kind of need met, but the need was rarely really sexual. The need was usually some kind of emotional need, some need to be like seen or heard. So that was like, it was so interesting to me when you look at uh, the story with like Breakfast at Tiffany's and both of these characters have kind of this, you know, they're both essentially like sex workers in a sense. Mm -hmm. And they're providing needs for these people and, and they're not with like completely free of judgment. And then they kind of find each other and they don't judge each other either, including like, <laughs> like I was like thinking about, I have like a note on um, the scene in the car, like towards the end where like, I'm sitting there thinking like, bro, like Paul slash Fred, first of all, she's been calling you her brother's name for this entire movie. Like, this is weird. That's a red flag. And you should fucking yeah. like, <laughs> someone needs to call this out. Like she's either one of two things. She's either like has some weird shit. She hasn't resolved with her brother or B like she's trying, she's so emotionally unavailable that she's trying to create an obstacle, yeah. you know, and set a boundary with him. And then that plus all this other shit that like he has been revealed about her. She's left her husband and her kids. Like, these are red flag. Now she like wants to throw her cat out. Like, it's like, I love, I love Holly go lately. I can, I can go there with her, but I'm also thinking like as a practical person in like not Hollywood land, I'm thinking like, these are red flags. Mm-hmm. And it's in a one way, like shocking that neither of them are like, you know, well him mainly, 
he's not like scared away by that and yeah. isn't like, hey, like, this is kind of like, but like it's also in a sense romantic and beautiful, but equally problematic because yeah. it's like <laughs> this is what shapes our idea of romance. It's like it's it's I you know it's funny it it does has that element of. You know, I, I mean, I think it is exemplified by the Oscar winning song of this movie, Moon River. It's two drifters is this is the central core of these two lost souls finding each other. And I agree that there is that problematic area within the, the finality of it. There is interestingly something about the spirit of how they find each other that is endearing. And that's the positive aspect you take away from it, even though you recognize where the problems lie from the psychological point of view. And I, you know, I think that, you know, it's funny because um, I mentioned Marilyn Monroe earlier as the as the ideal um, casting point for this film from Truman Capote's perspective, which don't worry, guys, Capote will be talked about further on other shows because he's very important to the John Huston story for a particular movie. Um, but, uh, the, uh, when, when this role was presented to Marilyn, uh, there was, there's two differing, uh, stories on this. One is that Jero and Shepard had to, um, uh, uh, turn Marilyn down and Shepard had previously represented Marilyn. So it was difficult for him. The other one that I read was that her representatives advised her against it because they didn't want Monroe to be seen as a lady of the evening in that regard. And then she ends up doing the misfits. Too close to home home. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, and that's something that like, I find interesting with the way Audrey plays this role and is asked to play this role. You know, this is by the time we do get to the end of the movie, there is that daring aspect of her, free of judgment quality that it seems like the only person she truly, truly judges is herself. And that's why she can't inhabit just one name. She has to embody several different names. That's why she can't name her cat. It's said in the line of dialogue, like I'm not Holly Golightly. I'm not Lula May. I'm nobody like the only thing she's not able to reckon with or to, um, be, uh, be, uh, uh, caring towards is herself. It's almost like she's definitely like thinking of others before herself, unless it's in regards to how do I, how do I go beyond this current circumstance? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to talk about because I, I see like a lot of different things in her. Like, first of all, I didn't get the takeaway that she was a call girl until you said it. In my opinion, I saw her as somebody who kind of, rode that line of taking advantage of mm-hmm. uh, rich men. Um, but it's either way. It's like a similar kind of realm. It's like not that far from. Right. Yeah. Like it, it, yeah. It is. It's really interesting because what I liked about it for both her and for him is that they are, this is what I, what I experienced in the strip club that was like, just so it's like, I I got to experience the locker room of the strip club, right? And I knew these women for years and I worked with them intimately. Like I'm like literally this close to their face, putting eyeliner in their eye. Like there's a level of trust happening there for sure. And it's like um, the way that I heard people talk about strippers or, 
or uh, dancers or whatever was so always so demeaning or like trying to like save them or whatever. And it was such a incongruent um, perspective to what I saw. You know, I was in the locker room sitting there with like normal fucking women who were talking about who are playful and fun and interesting and not like these just like sad forlorn you know it wasn't like that it mm. was it was a bright place with a lot of like vivacious energy and these these women were often very uh magical people that were smart and had other endeavors and sometimes had families and had you know parents they were taking care of like there was not this like dark element to it always not to say that that didn't exist you know mm -hmm. but uh the way that like sex workers are portrayed, it's gotten a lot better now, but it's just like, I loved that. And maybe that's why I missed it because uh, in a film from, from the 1960s to have like, that's the perfect, that's the perfect, uh, like it's shocking. It would be shocking for me to like, you know, that I think that's why maybe I didn't like see it that way as like her being a call girl. Cause I'm right. thinking like, yeah, she's a normal girl coming from somebody in the 1960s wanting to tell that story but like that's the most accurate way to portray somebody like that is she's vivacious she's powerful she's she has you know trauma and she, she's fucking been through right but she's also like reinvented herself right yeah. and she's she's invented she's reinvented herself in that holly go lightly fashion that I think like, you know, you know, the, the, as we're talking about the plot in this kind of like, uh, this, uh, more loose way here, we can address the, like certain elements of her playfulness that extend into when she and, uh, Peter go out for first, they go out to Tiffany's, um, with, uh, that wonderful scene with the, with the representative at the counter going like, Yes, I guess you can you you can engrave this Cracker Jack ring. I mean, I guess which is <laughs> it's still one of my favorite moments in the movie cuz he just looks so begrudged and just like I don't want to deal with anybody today, least of all you two. Um but then they go to the library and she has this like bright spot about her to be like, "Oh my god, like they have your book. Yeah, Peter's an author. They have your book, Peter, in the library. You should sign it." And the librarian being like, "Will you stop desecrating this book?" Like she's got like a, a this rebellious spirit about her, but also it's just like it's a playfulness. She's like she's fun to, she's having fun being alive. It's definitely personified when they're in the 5 and 10 and they're looking through and they're about to shoplift. The fact that she's encouraging this like small little petty crime, which actually, by the way, speaking of censors in the era and not noticing things right away, dialogue is the primary reason that you indicate that she's a call girl because of the $50 for the powder room scenario. Um, and I think there's other, there's other telltale signs, but like there were, it's amazing that not only this got across the censors, but also like petty larceny, was something that they would have been like, no, you can't show that being a f positive activity. You need to show that as a bad thing and whatnot. So this already shows how things were starting to change at this point to where a character like Holly Golightly uh, is acceptable to the modern audience. And I think it extends to the fact that because this movie has the legacy that it does, you can keep this tradition going of moving that positivity forward. Um, and I think that I love that you pointed out to the fact that like not all the dark elements exist. 
Holly's dark elements really come from an identity crisis, really. It, it's it's not even like the darker places that we can go with this discussion and this subject matter. This really is a, about finding yourself for her. Um, but it is important that she is the way that she is in order to shed some st- shed stereotypes away, number one. But number two, to also give a performance that arguably is much more empowering than one might perceive when discussing a comedy of this era. Um, and comedies can be tricky from this era because sometimes they are backward more than forward. And, you know, I guess this is as good a segue as anything to talk about the backward element of this movie. Um, as been alluded to, Mickey Rooney is in this movie. Um, Mickey Rooney is uh, playing the role of... Mr. Yuniyoshi. Um now I have a question for you Bella. <laughs> when you watched the movie for the first time last year, uh you don't need to give me a uh video reaction breakdown. <laughs> uh but uh what what was your um first response to seeing Mickey Rooney in that uh horrible yellow face makeup? <laughs> So I didn't even realize it was Mickey Rooney to start. I was just thinking, did they just hire an Italian guy with veneers that can't say his R's and put glasses on him? Like, why? That's interesting. (laughs) I like didn't, I didn't put it together until the second time I watched it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is happening here. But I, it was like, it felt like (laughs) it was like, you guys are doing too much. Just get an Asian actor. Like. Can I can I tell you a little bit more about yes, how please. this uh, comes about? So the issue surrounding Mr. Yunioshi is that he was cast by Blake and the Richard Shepard in the commentary specifies that he was not comfortable with this from the get-go, but he respected Blake's decisions in that casting room and Rooney has not been innocent of this as this is the first time he has done this. He has put on an Asian accent before uh, as early back as on the Burns and Allen program where he is playing himself. He also adopts in a way to uh, detract people from visiting his house. Mr. Rooney put on a fake Asian accent to quote unquote play Mr. Rooney's Asian Butler. It's a denigrating accent and especially coming out of a post-war period where we had already uh, had our settlement of peace with Japan. This representation comes as a very disheartening uh, circumstance. And the the one beautiful thing about this Blu-ray and this uh, this feature is also available and I will be posting a link to it in the show liner notes. There is a featurette called Mr. Yunioshi, an Asian perspective in this featurette. You have representatives of Asian American advocacy groups and actress, Nancy Kwan, uh, talking about how they feel about Mickey Rooney's portrayal. It comes with a lot of understanding that frankly, they don't need to give because this portrayal is inexcusable and thankfully it is only in a total of maybe seven to ten minutes of this hour and 55 minute movie but he is essential to parts of this plot and i think that 
part of the issue that extends as to why this is an issue really comes from the fact with this country has had a huge problem with respecting Asian culture and also respecting Asian people in general, not the least of which acts, including the Chinese Exclusion Act, which tried to limit immigration of Asian America uh, Asians to this country. The fact that we exploited Asians for building the railroads and the fact that during World War II, we interred Japanese Americans in the internment camps that we did for as long as we did. And so Rooney playing Mr. Yunioshi, the contextual reasoning for him not seeing this as a problem has to do with the fact that Yellowface is a persistent problem in Hollywood that extended as far back as the silent era. You had actors like Lon Chaney Sr. Uh, portraying Asian people. You did also have Asian actors of the era, but they were not given proper representation apart from maybe Anna Mae Wong, who was allowed to exceed that and portray powerful roles. Again, another example of a woman leading the way. Um, but as far as, you know, Peter Lorre is one of my favorite actors of this era. He was part of the Mr. Moto series where he is playing an Asian detective and he is, it's hard to watch. It's, it's, it's a tough thing to sit through. It's something I don't go back to for a lot of reasons. It just doesn't like make sense. It's like just hire an Asian actor. Like it just like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, no, your, your, could, your confusion is valid. And I think a, a, a good way to uh, approach this also is I think ultimately this extends also to the writing of the movie. I think this is a this is a script problem as well, because I don't know what George Axelrod's script calls for. But I think that you have to pull back some stereotypes that are laid in there with the uh, idea of of him as a tenement owner, but also, and the big thing about this is that Rooney is doing a minstrelsy that is ex that existed prior to the civil rights movement, prior to other movements. But as we've learned, there were movements for equality and proper representation as far back as the birth of cinema itself. So saying that it was of the time is inexcusable. And especially in 1960, when we've already been through World War II and we're making peace with Japan, and granted there's a lot of baggage with the way we, um, the way, the way we occupied ourselves in Japan post-war and limited uh, a lot of uh, uh, communication of information with them. But <clears throat> to have Rooney doing this He's making a choice based out of ignorance, but it's also there's a that I can't look at it as anything but like, OK, so the director and the actor are making a decision for a portrayal, having full knowledge of what exists in the world. Let's exclude the Chinese Exclusion Act here, knowing that we've been through World War Two, Blake Edwards having served in the Coast Guard, knowing that the world has changed. And I have responses to the controversy years later. Director Blake Edwards did say, looking back, I wish I had never done it. I would give anything to be able to recast it, but it's there and onward and upward. And I think that's uh, pushing the issue to the side. I don't think that Edwards is fully expressing why it was a problem. Mickey Rooney himself had to say this. And I think that this is unfortunately a testament to Mickey not understanding the full pain of it and or trying to deflect 
he says, it breaks my heart. Blake Edwards wanted me to do it because he was a comedy director. They hired me to do this overboard and we had fun doing it. Never in all my 40 years after we made it, not one complaint. Every place I've gone in the world, people say, God, you were so funny. Asians and Chinese come up to me and say, Mickey, you were out of this world. He follows it up with, I wouldn't have done it if he had known that the portrayal would be offensive. Those that uh, those that I didn't like, I forgive that or those that didn't like it. I forgive them. And God bless America. God bless the universe. God bless Japanese, Chinese, Indians and all of them. And let's have peace. He's literally deflecting the issue as an 87 year old man. And that's, that's funny because I'm like, literally no Asian person is saying to you, you were out of this world. Like, that's not. No, no, that's not what people, but I will say that I, I do think that it's, it's a complex topic because, um, you know, you deal with this a lot in comedy. Like sometimes there is a lot of like not wanting to step on certain like people that are in, you know, like we're becoming more aware of like uh, of dynamics with minorities and women and gender and all these things. So like there is stuff that people are not wanting to talk about in comedy or rather that people are getting judged for when talking about in comedy. I do think it is different, but I will say that like take uh, Chappelle's SNL um uh, cold open, for example, during the election. Mm -hmm. It's like Chappelle is incredible at doing, he hits on every group of people. He makes fun of and has a joke about every group of people. And the biggest one that people had issues with was women. He makes a really funny joke about um, women's pay and it's hilarious. But a lot of women had an issue with it. Me as a comedian, I can look at that and be like, thank God somebody's making a joke about this because I need to laugh about this issue, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because to me, I'm not taking it as my interpretation isn't, you know, and, and you, you see that my interpretation isn't like, oh, Chappelle fucking hates me. You know, it's like, no, like he's, he's acknowledging the struggle and then making like a stupid like joke about it. Mm -hmm. he, like his punchline is something like, uh, like he's talking about he's talking about Trump's advisor when he's talking about drinking like the bleach. He's like <laughs> yeah. he's like talking about like how they like televise the advisor who's sitting right there just being like Yeah. Like the medical advisor. And he's like, that woman is not saying shit. Like she should be fired. And he's like, maybe that's the reason why women get paid this, you know, half of what men get or whatever, like that percentage of what men get paid, whatever that statistic is. And then, and then he's like, which makes sense. I think they should get paid less, which I think is hilarious. He obviously does it much better than that, but I thought it was hilarious because it creates levity essentially, mm -hmm. but people watch that other women and, and they get really offended by that. And I understand, you know, from one standpoint, but I also think that a lack of levity really, again, I don't think this is the case in, in the movie. I do think, it is a little, it's, it's extreme. It's like, and it's noticeable and it's, and we can watch it now because uh, there was, there's so much time that passed where, and you can like watch the absurdity and be like, you're almost laughing at the absurdity because it's so insane that anybody would ever do this. Mm -hmm. But if that came out right now, it would be like deeply offensive, right? You're like, 
watching these people that are like thinking that this is totally okay and being like, wow, how did that get by? Right. It's interesting that you say th- that you, that, that you can perceive it that way, because I do think that that's a, uh, it's, it's, um, it's something that I, I think falls in line with the idea of looking at this as a teaching tool. Yeah. And in the featurette on the Blu-ray, there is a discussion about how this is a teaching tool where you you can't ignore it, you can't shove it to the side, you can't pretend it doesn't exist, you have to address it. And I do think that comedians in particular are right now are navigating a uh, uh, navigating the evolution of comedy right now and where it stands right now and how do you approach a tough subject in a way that provides that levity that you discussed and also learning where to go beyond that with the way the delivery uh, has handled. And I, and I admire comedians who are navigating those waters because they are tasked with being in many ways, social commentators that are necessary beyond uh, a, a, t- a typical news pundit um, on, uh, I, I mean, like I think that comedians especially have a better understanding of the frustrations that are possessed in the world. And so to have this navigation period right now where we are learning about how to approach delivery or how to approach the subject in a way that's constructive for people and uh, recognizing different elements of where that discussion goes is essential to understanding a performance like Rooney's. And why would they do this? And why do we not do it anymore? Because I think that the big thing to take away from Mr. Yunioshi as a character that Mickey Rooney is inhabiting is it's an element of the script and of the casting that suggests to me somebody was was just going for shooting for some kind of weird, weird perception of what would be funny rather than yeah. thinking about the humanity, which is surprising because Blake Edwards provides humanity for Holly and for Peter. And that's, I think, the frustrating part of Mickey Rooney's involvement in the movie. I mean, it's it's because here's another question, like to follow up on that. It's like, would it have been less offensive if he was played by an Asian man, but had a similar play to play to trope? That's, you know, and that's what I'm worried about is if, if, even if you get an a I, I if you got an Asian actor to then do the accent the 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 appeasement is that you are hiring somebody of that heritage and the one thing that you know they provide in the featurette a perspective on this is that they were starting to Nancy Kwan herself was involved in a film in in, in a film that launched the stereotype of Asian people as prostitutes and the commentators on that specify that that is a loaded movie because on the one hand you have this stereotype being perpetrated that then becomes solidified even 30 to 40 years later. However, they recognize that there is a positive way that she is portraying humanity and providing a realism to or a or a, um, a a relatability that didn't exist from Asian stereotypes prior to that, um, and the and the one example they 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 cite, which is the most wonderful example that anybody could have, is how George Takai broke a lot of these stereotypes with Star Trek, with playing Mr. Sulu on Star Trek and providing a positive 
portrayal of an Asian uh, of an Asian of an Asian American or an Asian person in general in a position of power and in a position of emboldening emboldening and empowering in a way where like I mean I loved I loved this comparison is by the time you get to 1990 1991 Sulu is in the command of his own ship in Star Trek 6 this is a character that was allowed to evolve even beyond the ramifications of pre-civil rights movement era so yeah. When when you look at that, I do think that like if you had an Asian actor in the role as Shepard cited that he would have preferred, you would have to answer the question of is Blake Edwards going to ask him to do an accent? Is he going to ask him to behave in a denigrating manner? And given Blake Edwards' response to the controversy in general, and also he, I love Blake Edwards as a director. He is also very. Um, in in a lot of ways, he's an unapologetic person to a positive, but the but there's a detriment in the respect that like I don't know if he wouldn't have asked the stereotype out of an Asian Asian actor out of that role, and so that's well, where the complication lies for me personally. There's such an issue. There's such a challenging because it like brings up a lot of questions that like are follow ups to this, right? Because on one hand, you know, okay, so on one hand. It can be, it's a harmful stereotype that for people who already have biases, you know, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're accounting for interpretation, yeah, it's well, okay. If you're accounting for performance, it was just, or an efficiency and just like overall work, it's, that's a no, right? right. So like we understand the role that, Mr. Yunioshi played and why that was there. And that was a necessary like role for somebody to play. But the way that it was played was like the weaker part of that film. Right. Yeah. So like we can recognize that from a standpoint of other things that don't include racism, that it also is not beneficial for the film. Right. Right. But then when you think about like, what is a replacement character for the role that they're playing? We need somebody that, Essentially, we do need somebody that enca like encapsulates some kind of trope to play the disapproving neighbor, right? Yeah. Is it going to be the marmy old lady? Mm -hmm. And does that like what levels of stereotypes does that include? Is it going to be the you know the Italian mother, you know, or is it going to be the Cuban whatever? Like it's like anybody that like kind of the way that that role is set up and the dynamics there it's not flattering, right? No, so yeah. it raises a lot of questions that kind of like cascade off of our main minorities that we're trying to protect and kind of heal their, their relationship to American pop culture, right? Or just systemic racism in general. Um, and it's questionable at what, where we draw the lines because there are a lot of people that, it's like, do we then find, okay, so is the answer then we take the top of the food chain, essentially, which is an old white man. That's like, like maybe like, De like Dennis, Dennis the Menace, like that fucking neighbor guy. And we make that the guy mm -hmm. because we can afford to make fun of him because he's at the top of the food chain of our social structure. And then also, does that then reinforce or validate the social structure in general. So it's like, 
there are a lot of questions here. And I think that it's really difficult in that movie specifically, it just feels wrong. So like, it's definitely wrong. But when we talk about how we make moves forward, there's a lot of questions on it. And I think that uh, intent is a big part of it. And also navigating kind of intuitively, like, and just checking in with people. But ultimately, there are other, um, what, how do I explain? Like other, what's the word for it? Like implications mm -hmm. that come up with that as well. You brought up a good point about like, well, what, at what point do you, what, what, what stereotype do you replace for it in exchange? Will it be the, dis the, the disgruntled old woman? Will it be, um, a different, uh, ethnic portrayal, um, uh, playing the, playing the, the owner of this, uh, apartment of uh, this tenement building, there are questions to ask about that is like, how do you replace it? How do you address it? And these comedy directors of the past are making choices based off of what they know and not, not intending to harm anybody, but also not looking around them at the world changing in the smaller ways. Um, because it's one thing to look at the progress from a big, broad perspective. It's another thing to look at the details and what we're learning right now is details how do we suss out proper portrayal in a way that comes across as enlightened rather than uh, backwards? Is uh... I think that's an excellent point, and I think that like there, like part of those details include like you know if, for example, if an Asian person is on stage making fun of their own culture that's more free game than, you know, somebody that's, it's like, who is, it's like to have to, to give back to people the ownership of that content as like their content, I think is important. Like if it was like a, if, if we're watching like um, a film where the stereotypes are written in by an Asian director I think that's an entirely different conversation to be had. So that's like a detail, right? Because that's that person making a commentary on something that kind of belongs to them. It's not being taken from them. I think the um, big part of it is, is making sure that it's not in the hands of somebody who's going to fumble it with ill logic and no perspective whatsoever. I think that's the, well, that's the big I thing is perspective. That's a good point. And I think that that a lot of that also has to do with like the lack of accuracy when people who, you know, like I, I can always like tell when like a a bunch of dudes write in a, a, a female character, like a, a female yeah. lead. And I'm like, this is not like nobody's saying these lines. Like Exactly. You know? And you, that's a wonderful point because, you know, when you talk about that ownership and writing authentic voices is the key. And Mr. Yuniyoshi isn't an authentic voice. It's a it's a caricature devised out of the novella then pr proceeded into the script that ultimately lacks an authenticity and i mean i think the big thing ultimately with mr yunioshi and this conversation is you know because i think both you and alibella can uh, agree based off of people uh, basis people who have experienced trauma in their own respective fashions we do not wish to see anybody hurt when we talk yeah. about these these this content or make our own content going forward I think that Mr. Yunioshi's portrayal is important to address and speak to in in a direct terminology of number one, acknowledging that it's wrong. Number two, now that we know that it's wrong, what is the uh, how has 
the how has portrayal uh, developed over time? And I think that the good news is, and it has been exemplified in that featurette, is that there have been strides made. There are still plenty of strides to be made, especially when you have the current CEO of Disney, Bob Chopek, making a very denigrating statement about Shang-Chi, uh, the Shang-Chi movie coming out from Marvel as an interesting right. experiment. It's not an interesting experiment. It's the next step you guys were always going to have to take in order to make sure that film is for everybody and not just one key demographic that you appeal to. And yeah, and I mean, like, even just from a fully creative sense, like, uh, it's it's just not interesting to use a trope. It's just not interesting to use a stereotype. It's not dynamic. Like, it's not dynamic at all. Like, do better, you know? That's, I think, I think it's, it's like a... PC culture is a debatable thing because in some ways it can be harmful in other ways it's really helpful. It's, it's a, it's up for debate and it's circumstantial for sure. But I think that what we can all agree on regardless of, of that is, yeah, of course we don't want anybody as a result of our art to feel hurt um, or to feel like they're also like misrepresented. Mm -hmm. I think that's like yeah. the most annoying part of it as somebody who, you know, is, you know, I, I'm a Romanian immigrant. I'm, you know, I don't look white all the time. It depends on like what room I'm in, how white I'm perceived to be. Right. Or, uh, my name is Abella Bala. It's not, it doesn't sound like a white name. You know, there's like, I've like experienced like weird shades of like things as a result of that and then being a woman whatever not by any means like how bad some people experience it by by any means but nonetheless like I can speak to how like uncomfortable it is to see whatever minority you're a part of be misrepresented like poorly on film like you're just like no this is like not even like it'd be one thing if like if, if I write a trope of like an eastern European person that's like poor and like all the stereotypes or whatever i know how to make it funny because i know what's funny about it right right but, but if you're I, not but you wouldn't want me to write up because i don't have that experience and i would respect that because yeah. i don't have that experience i don't have that perspective it's um, right it's, it, i think what's also difficult with art is that accounting for the interpretation can also be tricky because you can't fully account for somebody's interpretation and you know that there is like that's a thing that we have to explore is how do we make honest art, but still account for people that are watching to make them feel safe and inclusive. And I think inclusivity is really the key word here yeah. across the board. Yeah, it, exactly. How do, we, how do we make it inclusive as opposed to how do we not say or do the wrong thing? The intent is to make people feel a part of something and to feel like they're, uh, they have access and they're represented and they're included. Inclusivity that's like love-based versus the fear-based approach is like, how do we not say the wrong thing to like not piss people off or to not be canceled? And I think when, that's, uh, when it's approached in that light, it ends up being more offensive than... Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, like, yeah, it it feels disingenuous when you don't come at it from a place of heart and, uh, heart and care. You it's a diff exactly. it's a difference between it's the difference between a robot putting out an algorithm versus the human heart with an intense desire to not isolate another 100%. individual. It's the difference between like 
this keyword was used, therefore we take it down off of YouTube versus like, like listening to context and having a conversation with somebody and realizing, oh, there's all these complexities happening. Like, it, the, 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 no, you speak, you're speaking on a very powerful element of breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, culture, uh, not culture, sorry, I went to say a golden age Hollywood in general, because one of the reasons this show exists is to address the context, um, albeit from a very base level, and I am an imperfect human being who is still learning as I keep going. I think that one of the things I have learned is that eliminating it entirely is not the solution. Um, I'm a big fan of Looney Tunes cartoons. A lot of racist shit going on in Looney Tunes cartoons. A lot of sexist stuff going on in Looney Tunes cartoons. When they come up in these elements of outdated media or older media, I I cringe as most people would from a from an enlightened point of view. I understand why it's there from the time that it was perceived and what humor was at that point because humor is the trickiest genre of any form of entertainment because it is constantly changing and it is constantly in trying to include everybody in there to a positive change and along the way along the way things things become outdated before you even realize it and i think that a big part of having access to these materials is understanding where we were so that we can go forward um do i like mickey rooney as mr Yunioshi? no it's far from his best performance it is he he's in a much better movie two years later for a performance of his called it's a mad 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 world where he's playing more of a you know, Bud Abbott to a to uh, Buddy Hackett's Lou Costello in that movie, and he's wonderful in it. Mickey Rooney is not an untalented man. This is a man who, from the from the earliest age that he wa- that he was as a kid in the MGM Studios, warming a lot of people's hearts with a lot of great performances, both comedic and dramatic. He's not by any means somebody that you should remove from any conversation. I think that. The reason why I give his statements such harshness, such harshness, is that, you know, being older, I would wish that you would recognize it rather than deflect it. Um, I know I'm not going to get that because unfortunately Mickey Rooney is no longer with us. But you know, I I I don't I do believe that he never intended to hurt anybody, and I think that that's the key thing you take away from that portrayal is that there wasn't an intent to denigrate somebody. There was an ignorance though. And that's the ignorance that you bring up. It's a cheap shot. Yeah. It's a cheap shot. Yeah. It's so like from a comedic standpoint, it's, it's like pathetic. Yeah. I think that I I agree. And I think that like to wrap the, the, the section in and we'll go to the reception of the movie, because I think we've talked about a lot of the different plot, plot elements of this film. We've talked a little bit about the pre-production of this film. We've gotten a good overall sense of Breakfast at Tiffany's, and this is usually not how the format of the show goes, but I'm glad that it went this way because there are so many layers to the portrayals in this film that it it behooved us to talk about the psychology of Holly Golightly, the psychology of Paul, and the 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 necessary conversation about Mr. Yunioshi. Um now we didn't get to talk about Martin Balsam, but don't worry, I've talked about him plenty on Psycho episodes because 
He's great in Psycho, and he's part of my favorite kill in Psycho. Um, but, you know, I think that this was a wonderful way to approach Breakfast at Tiffany's because it's a movie that people know backward and forward. And a lot of these bigger classic films, it's hard to find a new angle on it. And I think that this one was breaking down character psychology and breaking down when a cheap shot is being made like Mr. Yunioshi, you address it and go like, yeah, it's a cheap shot. That's the thing. That's the ultimate takeaway. If you wanted to be blunt about it and uh, 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 devoid of the analytical diction, it's a cheap shot. You know, and it's I think that's the best way to point it out is like, fuck you, man. <laughs> like, you know, like you do want to kind of yell at the television when you see it on screen. And I will say that by the time we get to the end of the movie, when you have Audrey Hepburn and George Papard kissing in the rain, your heart is melted. Even Mr. Yunioshi and Mickey Rooney can't take that away from you. You know what? That's such a great point. And also like to just like tack on to that. It's like, this is something that uh, I think this is what it comes down to, you know, again, for me as a, as an immigrant that came to this town, to this country and looks like ethnically ambiguous. Like I, people think I'm Middle Eastern. I've gotten like weird racism for that. Like there's just, I've experienced like racism for races that I don't even, I have nothing, no connection to. So I feel like, uh, the folks that I know that have been through really deep trauma because of race, it's like the least of their worries is fucking Mickey Rooney. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the shit that they've fucking been through and that they go through on a daily basis. While some folks like may take that really personally. And, and for those people, we have to be better, you know, but it's like, and it's just, it's also like, it's, it's adding when you have like stereotypes like that, that are normalized, it is problematic because it's like, it's it's adding to like a bullshit that like it, hurts it, people. It, it, it feeds into hateful doctrine. That's the it problem. Into, like it feeds into something just like completely inaccurate. On mm -hmm. top of that, like it's just not it's not like a full um, representation of somebody's life or culture or world at all. It's like a tiny sliver of it taken out of context, interpreted by a white person that then like re replicates it poorly but then i mean i think that the bigger issue too on the flip side of that is that you know also like immigrants and folks that minorities and 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 people that are like in gender minorities they've been through a lot crazier shit than to you know what i'm saying yeah. it's like there there's been there's been harder experiences than just mickey rooney to where yeah, Th that's why I say, Abella, when I say that, like, I tolerate this better than Gone with the Wind is is one to address the fact that I could be perceived as having a double standard. And I understand that. And I acknowledge that I can learn more from that if that is something that's called into question by anybody who's responding to this conversation that we've just had um, after it's been released. I'm also aware that I am aware of where my brain uh, is able to tune into the positive rather than the negative. With Gone with the Wind, I see nothing but negatives apart from strong African-American actors portraying roles that they that was all they had access to and bravely performing under circumstances that thankfully don't exist as much as they do did then. Um, Eddie Rochester Anderson, one of my heroes of Golden Age Hollywood as of late, is in Gone with the Wind. He's not in it that long, but in this uh, in the same year, he makes the first of three movies that break a lot of uh, 
break a lot of barriers uh, in terms of um, uh, interracial uh, interracial portrayals on screen with Jack Benny. So, like, there is a way to find the spark of hope amidst this horrible scenario. We address it, but we also understand where is the positive. And Mickey Rooney does not take away the positive things we discussed about Breakfast at Tiffany's. I think that's the big thing to take away. And I will tell you, in regards to the reception of this film, it seemed like people were able to get enjoyment out of this film in a way that has extended beyond the borders. First of all, obviously, this movie was nominated for Oscars for Best Actress for Hepburn, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Production Design, which the production design, we didn't even talk about it, but they're, like, they're filming in between New York and L.A. They only shot in New York for twelve uh, for 10 days, and the rest is interior in Los Angeles, and they make it look and feel East Coast in New York. They make, they, they accomplish that feeling. And uh, also nominated and won for Best Original Score and for Best Original Song, Moon River. Moon River is a classic that, a perennial hit that has uh, exceeded beyond all the ramifications of pop culture to the point where when you watch the movie Fletch and Chevy Chase is having a, uh, uh, a, uh, colonoscopy uh, in order to get information and a hand gets stuck up his butt and he just goes moon river <laughs> it's how it's that's how wonderfully influential that song has been and it's funny because that's a it's a song about two lost souls finding each other and traveling a world uh together uh, in spite of that loneliness this movie score, oh god score- incredible it's and it all underlays that moon river theme and that's a testament to henry mancini who is a a a composer that i think has been so influential that we take it for granted like baby elephant walk as a piece of music is something that we all take for granted as like we know that the way we know different themes uh from television because we've we've just had it there because there was a brilliant spark in henry mancini that created this lovely sense of music and i think breakfast at tiffany's score actually exemplifies subtlety while being uh while being uh grand it there's a I wish that it could just play over the soundtrack of my life. Like I just like, I'm watching that movie thinking like I need to find the soundtrack and put it on Spotify so that I can just go about my day. Like it's yeah. so it's inspiring and it's got like nuance and moments and depth. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those scores that's affecting. And thankfully Henry Mancini was insightful enough to not include stereotyped music under the Mr. Yoshi sequences. It's, it's very much devoid. In fact, when he's ever, he's on screen, there's no score. So like it's almost as if Mancini looked at it and just went like, nah, no, not no <laughs> Blake. Yes. No, not going to do it. That, yes. Nice try. Um, but the perception of this film of its time, uh, time magazine noted that for the first half an hour or so, Hollywood's Holly, uh, is not much different from Capote's. She has kicked the weed and lost the illegitimate, chi- illegitimate child she was having, but she is still Jolly Holly, the child bride from Tulip, Texas, who at 15 runs away to Hollywood to find some of the finer things in life, like shoes. It pointed out after that, after that, after that out of Capote beginning, director Blake Edwards goes on to an out of character end. Almost a half a century later. 
Time has commented on the pivotal impact of Golightly as such. Breakfast at Tiffany's set Hepburn on her 1960s Hollywood course. Holly Golightly, small town southern girl turned Manhattan trickster, was the naughty American cousin of Eliza Doolittle, cockney flower girl of My Fair Lady. Holly was also the prototype for the Hepburn women in Charade, Paris When It Sizzles, and How to Steal a Million kooks and capers as they call it and she prepared audiences for the ground level anxieties that Hepburn's characters would endure in the children's hour two for the road and wait until dark and the New York Times uh, uh, called the film a completely unbelievable but wholly captivating flight into fancy composed of unequal dollops of comedy romance poignancy funny colloquialisms and manhattan's swankiest east side areas captured in the loveliest of colors um now i before i go into their uh reception of golightly as a character i will say that that's a backhanded compliment to say it's completely unbelievable but wholly captivating because we've talked about how this film encapsulates emotional truths so it's almost like that critics of the era and i've noticed this a lot they don't necessarily tap into the emotional truth they're looking for believability which is the same believability in quotes that star wars fans look from star wars movies that's what they want and i'm like that's it's a space movie stop it <laughs> um and they said as go light for go lightly as impla uh, they said holly go lightly is as implausible as ever but in the person of miss hepburn she is genuinely uh, she is a genuinely charming elfin waif who was who will be believed and adored when seen george Papard is casual and for the most part a subdued citizen who seems like he to, who seems to like observing better than participating in the proceedings martin balsam makes a properly brash snappy hollywood agent again marty balsam i love that he's getting some mentions here Mickey Rooney's bucktooth myopic Japanese is broadly exotic. Uh, Patricia Neal is simply cool and brisk in her few appearances as Mr. Peppard's sponsor. And Villalonga is a properly suave and continental as Miss Hepburn's Brazilian, while Buddy Epson has a brief, poignant moment as Miss Hepburn's husband. Yeah, that's right. We didn't talk about Villalonga and Buddy Epson, but Buddy Epson has a wonderful, heartbreaking moment where she's at the bus station letting like telling him to go and he has this realization of just like i can't wrangle this woman anymore like i can't i can't make this woman love me anymore and he he doesn't put up a fight he goes like he's 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 had that realization for himself he it's almost like he needed to hear it out loud i don't know how that proceeds from a modern context what i see is the light in buddy ebsen's eyes dim in an instant and that's an actor thing that's one thing i love about actors with your eyes you guys are able to change in an instant without touching the structure of your face or the movement of your face it's in the eyes it's in the eyes that ultimately shows the down and shows the ground reality that they come upon after being on a high cloud nine and you know i I think it's important to um, uh, address Truman Capote's issues with this film. Uh, Truman Capote hated Hepburn for the lead part. (laughs) And uh, Gerald Clark, the Capote biographer of most note, deemed the film a valentine to free-spirited women rather than a cautionary tale about a little girl lost in a big city. This movie is a confection, a sugar and spice confection. I love that he says it's a valentine to free-spirited women because I would agree. I I think that this is... 
I want to build on that because yeah. one of the things, um, one of the things that I noticed was how relatable, uh, it was just so weirdly relatable, the kind of like the archetype and like her attitude toward relationships. It's like very on par with what we're seeing happening right now with millennials and Gen Z. It's like, uh, very like, how do I explain it? Like, I think the quote from her is, okay, it's, I have tonight made a serious decision. No longer will I play the field. The field stinks both socially and economically. economically yeah. And I, I think it's such a, uh, it's such a like similar thought to what most people in 2021 and even just like as far back as like 20, probably 16 in LA and in New York have thought about dating and, and finding relationships. And, you know, we're seeing right now that the um, rate of marriage among millennials is dropping dramatically. And I think a big reason for that, it's just interesting that the film was able to encapsulate that 60 years ago, yeah. right? Or how long has it been? 80 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's, it's, been, it's been about 60 years. And it's, it's funny that you, I, I didn't mean, I, I just want to interject really quickly on this, yeah. is that the ideals that, the ideas that we are seeing blossom now were but seeds in the 60s that were dismissed by a more malocentric society as, uh, you know, as like ch a cheap, useless ideology um, that obviously went against the whole idea of men in power or men as the head of the household, etc. Men having the upper hand in a relationship. That those ideas, it, it, the, the these ideas of free spiritedness that Holly possesses were in contrast with the norm. They didn't like it. Now we are in an age where that is much more acceptable and much more, I'd argue affirming towards one's own mental health, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because it goes fully against the stereotype of like women wanting to get married and all of that. That was super prevalent. I mean, it's still fairly prevalent even now, like that that's a stereotype, but even back that back then so much more, right. Close to the fifties. And the quote that she makes, uh, I mean, it's just interesting because I think currently what we're dealing with culturally in terms of like men and women and like the evolution of like relationships is that women are kind of in the state of, like frustration and like kind of like a lot of women have as a result of that themselves become emotionally unavailable as a as a reaction to you know not being able to find a partner who is able to like meet them at their level and and wants to you know and wants to show up so at a certain point you have to recognize like okay well nobody is gonna if nobody's gonna play that role so we can't do like the traditional you know, partnership, then I have to play that role for myself. Yeah. <laughs> There's danger afoot in the neighborhood. <laughs> always, always. Um, no, nobody's going to be playing that role for me. I need to play that, that role for myself that would be considered traditionally masculine. I need to provide for myself. I need to be focused on my career. Um, and then I do all the other things as well. But that type of mentality you know, reflected in a lot of Beyonce songs, if you will, tends yeah. um, to kind of uh, come back to this kind of this emotionally unavailable female perspective yeah. where women are kind of like, 
I don't need that. I don't want that. I'm focused on my own shit. I have my own money. And she, she really embodies that uh, point of view. And there's actually a quote that she has in that, that little fight that they have in the, in the car, you know, towards the end, um, before they end up together, she says something, he, he like confesses his love to her finally. And her response is, I'll never let anyone put me in a cage. She shouts at him. I'll never let anyone put me in a cage. I don't want, and then he goes, I don't want to put you in a cage. I want to love you. And she's like, it's the same thing. And I swear to God, I, have said the same thing to every boyfriend since 2002 because I <laughs> tend to be a little emotionally unavailable sometimes, you know, and, and in attachment theory, they call it avoidant because you're, you know, you kind of like suppress your needs and your desire for connection and you redirect it into like workaholism or these different things. It tends to be more masculine, uh, like stereotype that people do this, but now it's, it's, and in, in metropolitan cities, it's absolutely not the case. There's a lot of women that don't fuck with the dating apps. They don't, they're, they don't even want to date anybody seriously, um, because they're so focused on their careers. And I just found it interesting because on one hand, you know, as somebody who has, um, really aligned with that point of view and how do I, like, essentially aligned with it to the point where that's all I could see and been unwilling to see that maybe there is a part of me that I'm uh, not, not acknowledging that does want love and that does want, you know, that connection. Um, But I'm so pissed that like, I haven't been able to find it or irritated that I haven't been able to find it on my terms with somebody who doesn't want to fucking possess me and own me and force me to like let go of the things that are important to me right which I think is is a challenge for for uh dynamics between men and women and relationships but uh, and commitment um but it's like you know in this this last relationship that I've been exploring I'm realizing like wow like there was a part of me that it needs that I kind of suppressed um as a result of just being surrounded by fuckboys that couldn't meet me at that level, yeah, you know, and, and making the best of it, right? And yeah. in that realization, it's while it's like a weird thing because anybody listening to this, like, I, I'm, a sh- I'm absolutely sure that like there are women out there that will be listening that are like, fuck that, like, she's a betrayal, uh, she's betraying the feminist, like, like uh, manifesto or whatever. Which it's what I'm saying is that in our efforts to progress and be independent and, you know, all of these things that are wonderful things, they're wonderful things that, that maybe we haven't had access to in the past. And they're really important. And depending on the person, they can be deeply important, right? There's another side of it to where, you know, um, some of that can show up like a compensation for, you know, a compensation and a kind of hiding of what we might really want and that's not a bad thing, you know, it's just like each of us have to kind of decide and be conscious of those things so that we open ourselves up because the flip side of that is, and I lived in this, in the state for many years of emotional unavailability where I wasn't even willing to, uh, like entertain the concept of love because in my mind, I was just like, no dude is going to be able to show up for me in the way that I need. So it doesn't exist. And in order for me to have love, I need to compromise and and basically give up my rights to being an independent woman that I've 
that my foremothers have fought so hard for. Um, and the fact is that those two things aren't like mutually exclusive. You can have both things yeah. with the right partner and with the, with the skill set of communication um, that is required of like healthy relationships. And a lot of us in our, in our current society haven't learned those. We're, we're kind of like, we become soldiers of ideologies and of, of concepts that are progressive without fully taking our whole selves there and accounting for the other parts of that, that might be like disembodied, you know, lack of vulnerability as a result of a lot of abuse or pain or whatever the fuck yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, and I think all of that is important to um, include in the discussion. I'm glad that you uh, spoke to that because there is an element of the ending that I was wrestling with this week about like, is this a, is this a cop-out ending? And my answer is no. Um, it, it is, um, I think it, it's earned. It's an earned ending because of what we've seen with Papard's portrayal as well. Um, for all the, I mean, and Audrey's a very strong part of this movie. Papard deserves a lot of applause for a performance that I do feel uh, gives a perspective that is not uh, often seen and puts him in an emotionally vulnerable spot that, you know, like one of the things that I think that the ending, the reason it works so well and that it is a uh, a very wonderful example of a good Hollywood ending is that it is earned. It is not tacked on. It is not trying to wrap anything up. It led to this point. Um, and uh, Yunioshi detours aside, the film is about two drifters finding each other, emotional drifters, if you will. And I think that I don't think it takes away the power from somebody to also want that that care and compassion in their lives that comes from that emotional vulnerability. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a I'm a soldier of ideology in the regards of making sure that films of the past are properly represented as the forebearers of what we do in this art form while recognizing the issues that persist to this day. And I I think that Breakfast at Tiffany's, as a film, as a whole entire piece, carries with it two very key things to take away from in this discussion today. Number one, I'll just address, you know, the thing that that I'm sure a lot of people tuned in to hear what we what what my thoughts were on Mr. Yunioshi or what your your thoughts might be on Yunioshi and Vicky Rooney. And in regards to the portrayal of that, I'm going to say that this is the example that a lot of people hold up as the problem the problem with Golden Age Hollywood. This is one of many. And I think that it is important that as you watch it to if you have that Blu-ray or you have access to YouTube, watch that featurette and listen to the people speaking about the pain that that image brings while also listening to how they have learned to perceive it. Again, it is a few people being interviewed out of many that may feel different ways, and it is the utmost that you are considerate of their feelings when discussing this movie with anybody because your experience is not going to be their experience, and you have to be considerate of that. That is a, uh, that is one thing I am uh, stringent about is being considerate of how other people feel and understanding that and empathizing with that. That being said, this is a film that 
is an example of how much how far we have come and recognizing that there has been growth and evolution and we can optimistically look forward to even further progression as a result of having seen films like breakfast at tiffany's and the portrayal mickey rooney gives and learning from that and saying okay well i'm not going to do that i'm not going to do that going forward and we are at a point right now where we have actresses like Aquafina creating uh, creating television shows and expounding upon roles like in The Farewell that go above a stereotype. It embraces a culture while also giving an honest human performance. Uh, we're gonna get Shang Chi in, in about like a couple weeks here, and it's gonna be a cool, fun, big theater experience. There has been movement, and there will continue to be movement going forward as we learn better how to create art that speaks to all voices in an authentic way. Now I'll address the positive aspect of uh, the other characters involved, which is Golightly and Paul. We have learned that no matter how much we are marveling at this unexpected progressivism in the portrayal of Holly and Paul, there's this in-between period between then and now where that ideology and that mindset is stamped out by the traditional norm, whether that be masculinity, whether that be a religious construct, whether it be, it be anything. There is ultimately this period where feminist ideology and free-spirited ideology or emotional truth ideology is suppressed by something mightier. And thankfully, we are getting out of those bounds where, from a modern context, if you watch Breakfast at Tiffany's and embrace, obviously, what we have, what I discussed in the first point, you are going to find that these ideas of freedom and self-expression and self-actualization were there 60 years ago. Not too dissimilarly from how there were Asian advocacy groups or African-American advocacy groups in the past speaking about the issues we're still talking about today. This isn't something that just emerged in the 60s. It's been here this entire time. Breakfast at Tiffany's is an example of how the problems and the progress have been here this whole time. And we're still fighting it and we're still in, and we're still learning from it. So I think it is a good teaching tool that I'm very glad you brought to the show, Abella, because it is, I think, essential to talk about in this particular conversation and in more going forward. Where we recognize where the conflict is of how we reconcile problems of the past while appreciating what we're seeing that we still see today as now a positive that might have been perceived by... Uh, any jerk in the 60s as like, well, that's just nonsense. Now go back to the kitchen. No. Holly wants to go live in the big city. She's going to go fucking live in the big city. And I think that ultimately the brilliance of Breakfast at Tiffany's does extend to those two people that I brought up at the beginning. We've got Blake Edwards behind the camera knowing how to tell a human story with a lot of fun, broad comedy and uh, the way people are portrayed at that party or that wonderful heist scene in the five and 10. And we have Audrey Hepburn providing a wonderful, a, a wonderful example of a type of performance that we see evolve and grow 
over the years with romantic comedies. And frankly, speaking as of Hepburn as a whole, the way different performances have been tr- portrayed. I know that other actresses idolize Audrey Hepburn and not just for her elegance and her glamour. They admire her for her gumption and her spirit. It's a gumption and a spirit that quite frankly is a good thing to look up to. And I want to, on that note, thank you very much, Abella, for talking with me about this film in a very unique way that I think was essential to the show. We needed to talk about it in this way because going through the plot, we'd be rehashing the same things. We broke it down to these three key components. Um, And I'm glad that you brought your personality, your spirit, and more importantly, your thoughts to this to this film that I think still has a power to capture people's attention in spite of Mickey Rooney. (laughs) Thank you very much, Abella. I want people to know where they can find you uh, on the internet sphere and all out there in the world. Thank you, Zach. I've had so so much fun chatting with you about this movie and uh, what a cool, just what a cool concept for a show. It's just such an interesting um, opportunity that you don't get every day to kind of dive into all the nuance of um, one piece, you know, especially like a foundational piece of pop culture and American cinema. Um, So thank you so much for having me on. Um, And then as far as, yeah, people can find me on Instagram. I'm like not active mostly on social media because I like to like live in life. There you go. But they can find me on social media. It's at Abella Bala TV. Um, they can find me on their Netflix channels uh, on a film called Deadly Illusions that mm. came out earlier this year um, that I'm really proud to have had the opportunity to work on. The director, um, Anna, is she's she did some really interesting stuff with that film, very progressive. Um and they can find me hopefully at a show soon. I'm, I'm working on a new set right now. So hopefully I'll have some show dates soon that I will be announcing on my Instagram. Wonderful. And we will make sure to uh, post those uh, announced dates on the show liner notes when the episode comes out so that people can be, if you're in the LA area listening to this episode um, and you want to catch out Abella's, uh, Abella's comedy, you, you should seek it out and I will make sure that you know exactly where to go. Um, and we've already talked about this off mic, but we're definitely going to have you back. And you brought up a movie in your email back, um, responding to what you would want to talk about that. I love that you brought up, which is whatever happened to baby Jane. So I think, uh, amongst the many times that I will have you back on this show, whatever happened to baby Jane is going to be discussed on this show. And I will be very delighted to talk about (laughs) the, 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 confliction abound in that production but also that movie because it's a stellar horror movie it's a wonderful horror movie guys um i really look forward to it zach thank you so much yeah and that's gonna wrap it up for this episode of the yesteryear ballyhoo review you can find more about us on the show tags at the back half of the show um and also i can announce this here matt willicks our, our lovable genial guest from the abbott and costello and casablanca talks he and I are going to be going into Universal Monster Territory with Dracula and the Spanish version of Dracula that came out the same year. We're going to do a compare and contrast, but that means Bella Lugosi's coming back, boys and girls. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but until all of this and until next time, folks, good night. This 
This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.